Welcome back, fans, to another episode of Riddles in the Dark, and we are getting perilously close to the uh, to the release of the film, so we're uh, trying very hard to get a couple last predictions and episodes out the door, just to make sure we've covered all of our bases, um, and... Um, Welcome back, fans, to another episode of Riddles in the Dark, and we are getting perilously close to the uh, to the release of the film. So we're uh, trying very hard to get a couple last predictions and episodes out the door, just to make sure we've covered all of our bases. Um, and um, and we are just I, I don't know about Corey, but I know I am just increasingly filled with excitement and anticipation. I, we were really really worried um, about uh, spoilers leaking out with the premiere in New Zealand earlier this week, but fortunately we haven't heard anything. So our game remains um, uh, the integrity of our game remains. So we continue we march on into the next riddle. So I'm your co-host Dave Kale, and with me as always is. My illustrious partner, the Tolkien professor, Professor Corey Olson. All right. Thanks, Dave. Well, yeah, just to give a bit of an overview about uh, what we're going to be doing from here, um, today is actually going to be our last film one riddle, um, our uh, our last official prediction. Um, We are going to have one more episode before the film comes out um, and we're planning that for Tuesday, December 11th. Um, We'll confirm the exact time of day in in, in about a week or so. And on that day, we're not going to be doing uh, a special prediction. We're going to be kind of going back and reviewing and gathering together all of our, you know, going over all of our predictions, sort of making sure that we have things ready because it's almost time to tabulate our scores. Um, So this means a couple things. The first thing, of course, from our end is it means we have to get things, make sure that we all agree um, on the parameters of the questions and everything because we have a team of people who will be uh, forming the adjudicating body. We have five judges who will be deciding the official riddles in the dark answers to the, uh, to the questions. So we want to make sure that we have uh, those, those things all clear in mind for them as we move forward. But the other thing that it means is that we have, um, we're going to, we, we, this is, you know, we are approaching the last chance that you guys have to register your votes uh, if you want to participate in the game. We're going to have, uh, we're, we're going to have prizes, we're going to have certificates awarded. Uh, so if you guys officially want to register, we have a, a volunteer who is uh, very helpfully going to go through and actually form a spreadsheet with the individual predictions of everybody who participates in the game with us. Um, so uh, if you want to do that, go to the Riddles in the Dark Facebook page and and you can enter your responses there on, on our Facebook page. There are um, poll questions for every single one of our riddles, and you can go through and enter your your uh, your guesses and see if you can do see if you can do better than better than I do, which really will probably not be all that challenging. But anyway, you can <laughs> still you can shoot for that lofty goal. Um, so that's as I said, this is this is the penultimate the last time we're going to be introducing a new riddle. So what we had done, as you may probably remember, uh, two weeks ago when we did our last episode, uh, we left this the topic of today's session up for a vote, and the overwhelming landslide victory was uh, that you guys wanted us to talk about the White Council and the White Council plot. So. Um, so that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the White Council. And I thought I would start off, as I often do, uh, with, you know, uh, to first ground ourselves in, in what we know from the books. And this one is a little bit more complicated because, of course, here we're not just talking about 
a particular passage or theme or motif or something in the Hobbit book itself, but in the materials that Tolkien wrote afterwards. Um, because the White Council stuff is, you know, and this is this the, the White Council plotline is to me the 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 sort of the the clearest example, the 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 sort of uh, most prominent um, illustration of what Peter Jackson is doing in the film as far as working with the materials that Tolkien wrote later on in order to contextualize and frame the Hobbit story within the history of Middle Earth that he had developed later on. Um, but let me start off with the Hobbit book. Here is the entirety of what we get about the White Council storyline in the published Hobbit. This is in the last chapter, in the last stage, as Bilbo and Gandalf return to Rivendell. And Bilbo is listening in as Gandalf relates to Elrond all the stuff that happened. It was in this way that he learned where Gandalf had been to, for he overheard the words of the wizard to Elrond. It appeared that Gandalf had been to a great council of the White Wizards, masters of lore and good magic, and that they had at last driven the necromancer from his dark hold in the south of Mirkwood. That's it. You get exactly one sentence about what Gandalf was doing when he left uh, Bilbo and the dwarves and went south. We find out that he was meeting with, uh, it's, it's the word, the phrase White Council isn't even used, um, a great council of the White Wizards. It says, Masters of Lore and Good Magic. So you can see in this not very, you know, thoroughly <laughs> explained moment in The Hobbit that Tolkien had at this point some kind of concept of a group of wizards that Gandalf and Radagast, Radagast who was named previously in The Hobbit very briefly as we've gone over um, in, the, in the Bjorn chapter, um, Gandalf and Radagast are two of an unspecified but apparently larger than would later be the case, number of wizards who were all uh, good, you know, masters of lore and good magic, and that they got together and, and kicked the necromancer out of Mirkwood. Um, we don't have any reference. Elrond obviously was not directly involved in this conception because Gandalf is coming back and reporting to him, oh, FYI, the white, you know, the white wizards met and kicked out the necromancer. This is news to Elrond. Um, and there's no reference, of course, to Galadriel or any other Elvish involvement. So obviously, from this seed, the story developed and changed very significantly. The, the, the conception of the wizards obviously changed as Tolkien defined more clearly the number and reduced the number of wizards that there were um, as the, the Lord of the Rings story developed. Um, so we no longer have this amorphous and possibly large group of white wizards. And of course, the number of wizards who, you know, truly count as masters of lore and good magic um, become comparatively fewer because, of course, the betrayal of Saruman and the corruption of Saruman um, becomes, you know, obviously part of the story as we go along. So that's the origin of it. Now, the next thing I want to do is look at, as Tolkien worked this out further, as this developed, what is the White Council plot as he outlines it? in The Lord of the Rings. And the best way to, to see that is in Appendix B, is in The Tale of Years. If you go through and look at the summary of what happened in the history of the Third Age, you can see more clearly the shape of the, um, you can see more clearly the shape of the, uh, of the, um, the whole White Council outline. And the things that I would particularly want to draw attention to here are the things that are certainly relevant for the film are the question of how you know, how Gandalf and the others interact with Sauron and discovering that the necromancer is Sauron and all that, the timing of that, Sauron's fall and corruption, and then how that fits with you know Bilbo, Thorin, 
uh, and the dwarves and how that's going on. And the main thing that you will notice is that chronologically, this is spread out really, really wide. Um, remember that, just to, to give you a few dates to hang on to, 2890 is the year that Bilbo is born. Okay, um, so almost all of the events of uh, of the you know, the major events of the Third Age start in the you know 2900s basically. Um, the the Hobbit plot takes place in 2941, and then you know you've got the major um, the major events. You know, uh, uh, 3018 or is the is the year of the beginning of the of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so you've got the so 500 years before that um, is when the White Council is initially founded. The White Council is formed in 2463, um, and that is about at about the same time. Uh, Appendix B notes um, that Deagol the Store finds the One Ring and is murdered by Smeagol. So Gollum gets the ring at about the same time that the that the White Council is initially formed. Um, then you know we've got a, a bunch of a bunch of time passes. The Battle of Nanduhirion, so the Battle of Azanulbazar, is 2799, so we're already several hundred years after that. Um, now, Gandalf initially goes, he actually goes to Dol Guldur twice, according to this outline. Mm -hmm. um, Gandalf goes once to discover who who to, to discover who the necromancer is, um, and that that was actually before that was that was further back, um, like a thousand years prior to the Lord of the Rings. Gandalf first went back in twenty in twenty sixty. Sauron retreats and hides in the east. Um, uh, this is on page uh, ten sixty two in my edition, which is a continuously paginated edition. Um, the watchful peace begins. The Nazgul remain quiet in Minas Morgul. Um, so Gandalf first goes to Dol Guldur, and Sauron runs away, in order to you know he he retreats and hides because he doesn't want them to find out that this is him. But he does still want to keep his outpost in Dol Guldur. He returns to Dol Guldur 400 years later. Um, in fact, three years before the foundation of the White Council. That seems to be what prompts the foundation of the White Council is the return of the Necromancer to Dol Guldur with increased power. So, so now Sauron is back again, and they're still trying to figure out who he is to confirm who he is in any case. Um, and so the White Council forms, and Galadriel mentions before that she was the one who called the White Council together. Gandalf's second entry into Dol Guldur isn't until 2850, so that's now 400 years after the foundation of the White Council. Gandalf enters Dol Guldur, discovers that its master is indeed Sauron, who is gathering all the rings and seeking for news of the One and of Isildur's heir. Um, so again, so one thing that you can already notice in kind of peeking out of the books here towards the film, huge expanses of time are going on here. Um, and if there's one thing that is really predictable about converting, you know, a story, a, a book story, uh, to a film story, they'll it's do it exactly like time. that in the film. Yeah, exactly. Like the 400 years pass, <laughs> which, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's, that's, um... You think they uh, won't? I doubt it. They couldn't even wait for 17 years to pass between uh, the, the Bilbo's party and uh, Frodo's departure. So, no, I don't think so. Um, but again, that's exactly the kind of compression that I think, you know, we really, you know, can expect. Okay, so, so Gandalf figures out that the Necromancer is Sauron in 2850. The next year, the White Council meets again. Gandalf urges an attack on Dol Guldur, and Saruman overrules him. 
and then um, Tolkien as a footnote, it afterwards became clear that Saruman had then begun to desire to possess the One Ring himself, and he hoped that it might reveal itself, seeking its master, if Sauron were let be for a time. So Saruman is actually gambling here that, that Sauron's presence is going to help, help him, Saruman, find the One Ring. He's already looking for it. Um, so this is an important thing to keep in mind now when it comes to Saruman and his story. He is already, and now keep in mind, we are still at this point in 2850. Uh, we're, what, 40 years before Bilbo's birth still, okay? Um, so we're almost 100 years before the events of The Hobbit. At, at that point, Gandalf has already discovered that, that the necromancer is Sauron, and Saruman is already going bad. Saruman is already plotting to get the ring from him for himself and is already playing false with the White Council. Now, of course, you'll remember that it's not until the Council of Elrond that Saruman's treachery is actually revealed to everybody. Everyone, Gandalf, uh, Goadriel, Elrond, everybody, is still convinced that, or at least mostly convinced, that Saruman is a good guy and on their side until the events of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so throughout this, Saruman is still succeeding, not only in manipulating the council, but in, in, uh, in keeping them from understanding his true intentions. And so Saruman begins to search near the Gladden Field. Saruman is looking for the ring. Um, as he's convincing them not to, not to, um, to go, he's, 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 he's convincing them. In 2939, so this is now two years before the events of The Hobbit, Okay, um, so Bilbo is 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 already alive and established in in the Shire. Right before this is the last entry prior to the events of the Hobbit in the Tale of Years. Saruman discovers that Sauron's servants are searching the Anduin near Gladden Fields, and that Sauron has therefore learned of Isildur's end. He is alarmed, but says nothing to the council. So there is this whole subplot of Saruman trying to find the ring, Saruman knowing that Isildur died in the in the in the Gladden Fields, and that the ring was probably with him. And, uh, and remember, that's not common knowledge at that point. Um, and now he's figuring out that Sauron has somehow learned this as well. And Sauron is now hunting. And that is what convinces Saruman to agree to attack Dol Guldur when the White Council meets in the same year that the Hobbit goes, when Gandalf leaves Bilbo and the dwarves and goes to the White Council meeting and meets with the White Council. And this is not, you know, like an annual meeting. This is a very unusual meeting. They haven't met in many years. Um, now Saruman agrees. Okay, you know, Gandalf, again, is trying to get them to attack Dol Guldur. He was trying to get them to attack Dol Guldur 90 years before when he found out that it was Sauron. But now Saruman agrees, and they attack, they attack Sauron together because Saruman now wants him out of the way because he's afraid that Sauron is going to find the One Ring, and he doesn't want that to happen, so he agrees to kick him out. Sauron, having made his plans, abandons Dol Guldur, so it's not a real battle. Um, he retreats. Uh, it's a tactical retreat by Sauron, not a defeat. And, of course, all of the events of The Hobbit um, happen during that same year in 2941. So that's the outline of the, of the White Council stuff that we get going on. We're given very little about Elrond and uh, Galadriel's involvement. Um, it's not explicitly said whether or not Radagast was there. A little hard for me to believe that he isn't because he's one of the wizards. Um, and uh, um, yeah, I mean, I would, I mean, being told nothing, as we are told nothing, um, I would assume that um, he is there, would be my assumption in default. Um, so, okay, so that's what we get in the outline there in Appendix B. As he was working on this still later in his career, 
um, in some of the materials that are collected in Unfinished Tales. Um, we get some stuff, basically as he was looking back on this and looking back at this larger outline, Tolkien clearly decided later on, later on in his life that it was kind of implausible that Gandalf, at least, would not even be a little bit suspicious about Saruman, you know, that he would be completely blindsided um, by Saruman. So, um, so, um, so Tolkien wrote a little bit more about the sort of suspicions and rivalry between Gandalf and Saruman at some of the White Council meetings prior to, um, you know, the major events and the, the, the kicking out of the necromancer. Um, and I won't read all of this. This is in, um, in the end of the section, uh, the, the very tail end of the section of Unfinished Tales uh, called The Hunt for the Ring, um, the section called Concerning Gandalf, Saruman, and the Shire. Saruman soon became jealous of Gandalf, and this rivalry turned at last to a hatred, the deeper for being concealed, and the more bitter in that Saruman knew in his heart that the Grey Wanderer had the greater strength and the greater influence upon the dwellers in Middle-earth, even though he hid his power and desired neither fear nor reverence. Now that by itself is interesting. You'll remember in The Lord of the Rings, Gandalf says that Saruman is the greatest of his order. Um, you know, that Saruman is the greatest of the wizards, and that's why he's the leader of the White Council. As is fairly typical in his later post-Lord of the Rings writings, um, Tolkien tended to elevate Gandalf even further. Like, the, the more time went past, the greater Gandalf got in Tolkien's mind. Um, so here we have him kind of rewriting that and suggesting that, yes, Gandalf submitted to Saruman, but he wasn't submitting because Saruman was genuinely his superior. This merely showed that Gandalf was more humble than Saruman, and Saruman wanted to exert power and influence, and Gandalf didn't care. Uh, let's see. Saruman did not revere him, but he grew to fear him, being ever uncertain how much Gandalf perceived of his inner mind, troubled more by his silences than by his words. So it was that openly he treated Gandalf with less respect than did others of the wise, and was ever ready to gainsay him or make little of his counsels, while secretly he noted and pondered all that he said, setting a watch so far as was possible upon his movements. And then it goes on to say how Gandalf was interested in the Shire, and hung out with the hobbits a lot, and Saruman noticed, because he was keeping an eye on him, that Gandalf was doing this, and so Saruman himself went to the Shire, and snooped around, and spied on things. And that, that's, by the way, how he came to know about pipeweed. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, as for instance, now truth to tell, observing Gandalf's love for the herb that he called pipeweed, uh, for which he said, if for nothing else the little people should be honored, Saruman had affected to scoff at it, but in private he made trial of it and soon began to use it, and for this reason the Shire remained important to him. Um, <laughs> the, the tobacco-oriented uh, uh, dynamics of this relationship are very important. Um, it all but, boils down okay. to economics. <clears throat> right, exactly. Um, and then we come to... Uh, the, uh, the, 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 the pipeweed stuff is a lead-up to this, this post-White Council scene. Uh, now, because of his dislike and fear, in the later days, Saruman avoided Gandalf, and they seldom met, except at the assemblies of the White Council. He was at the Great Council held in 2851. Sorry, it was at the Great Council held in 2851 that the halfling's leaf was first spoken of. That's the one right after Gandalf discovers that, that it's definitely Sauron, and he comes back and says, let's kick him out, and Saruman says no. That's the council he's referring to here. 
and the matter was noted with amusement at the time, though it was afterwards remembered in a different light. The council met in Rivendell, and Gandalf sat apart, silent, but smoking prodigiously, a thing he had never done before on such an occasion, while Saruman spoke against him, and urged that, contrary to Gandalf's advice, Dol Guldur should not be molested. Both the silence and the smoke seemed greatly to annoy Saruman, and before the council dispersed, he said to Gandalf, When weighty matters are in debate, Mithrandir, I wonder a little that you should play with your toys of fire and smoke, while others are in earnest speech. But Gandalf laughed and replied, You would not wonder if you used this herb yourself. You might find that smoke blown out cleared your mind of shadows within. Anyway, it gives patience to listen to error without anger. But it is not one of my toys. It is an art of the little people away in the West, merry and worthy folk, though not of much account, perhaps, in your high policies. Saruman was little appeased by this answer, for he hated mockery, however gentle, and he said then coldly, You jest, Lord Mithrandir, as is your way. I know well enough that you have become a curious explorer of the small, weeds, wild things, and childish folk. Your time is your own to spend if you have nothing worthier to do, and if your, and your friends... You may make as you please, but to me the days are too dark for wanderers' tales, and I have no time for the simples of peasants. Gandalf did not laugh again, but he, and he did not answer, but looking keenly at Saruman, he drew on his pipe and sent out a great ring of smoke with many smaller rings that followed it. Then he put up his hand as if to grasp them, and they vanished. With that he got up and left Saruman without another word, but Saruman stood for some time silent, and his face was dark with doubt and displeasure. And he's doubting, of course, whether he is he should interpret Gandalf's gesture uh, that, you know, the halflings have something to do with the rings of power, and then Tolkien goes on to clarify that at this point Gandalf had no suspicion that the hobbits would ever have anything to do with the rings of power, or he certainly would never have made that gesture. Um, but uh, But rather that he was sort of but that he was kind of tipping Saruman off to the fact, uh, Gandalf was, that he knew, he suspected that Saruman was seeking the rings of power and wanted them for himself, but warning Saruman that they would elude his grasp, and that was the meaning of his little smoke gesture there. Hmm. Okay, that's about as much detail as we get about the White Council. Um, I hope and as I all said, of those scenes later... are directly translated into the film. All, all of those scenes are directly translated yes. into the film. Yeah, they're 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 fencing over over um, um, hobbits and pipeweed. I think those <laughs> pipeweed. Yeah, that's going to make rich rich dialogue <laughs> that that the mainstream audience will just eat up. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. More talking. The more talking about smoke, the better. Um, well, especially now, of course, the, the two, two things I would add to this. Well, first of all, the one thing I would add to that, of course, with his uh, with his in my mind, irresponsible uh, implications that uh, pipe, and though it's perhaps not entirely his fault. I think that perhaps Dominic Monaghan and, and Billy Boyd uh, bear much responsibility for this. But uh, anyway, with the implications that he made in the films that uh, the that pipe weed is not merely tobacco. Um, then uh, I think it's going to sort of damp <laughs> things down a little bit. But the, uh, the main thing I would say is that remember one thing that I think bears on the White Council issue, and in particular the issue of the depiction of Saruman um, in, in a special from the films, and that is Peter Jackson, with the way that he did the compression of events in the Fellowship of the Ring movie, and in particular with the way that he had Gandalf decide to go off to Isengard um, initially, 
he has really boxed himself in a corner there. And that is something that I will be very interested to see how he gets around. Because, of course, when Tolkien was, you know, those scenes that I just added, like, you know, the stuff about Gandalf's suspicions of Saruman, that he's looking for the rings of power and all that, um, that is stuff that Tolkien wrote later. When he wrote The Lord of the Rings, there's no implication of that, you know, and we are given to understand in The Lord of the Rings story that nobody had had any suspicions of Saruman and that his his treachery, you know, was hitting everybody out of the blue at that time at the Council of Elrond. And so Gandalf's agreement to go at Radagast's request, when he meets Radagast on the road, Radagast conveys Saruman's message and Gandalf decides to go down to Isengard. He, he does, it, it's, that's consistent um, with the fact that he didn't have any real suspicions. When Tolkien later on wrote back into this, the stuff that he just, that I just read from Unfinished Tales, when he goes back and he decides that he does want to add some retroactive suspicions on Gandalf's part, it's still consistent with what he wrote in The Fellowship of the Ring. Gandalf can still be a little bit wary and yet go to Isengard, I think, under the circumstances described, because he's not, it's not his own idea. In the film, he's like, okay, I just discovered that this is the Ring of Power. Uh, you know, Frodo's got it. So what do I do? I can't think of anything to do. I know I'm going to go down to Isengard and consult with Saruman because he's the chief of my order. Trust me, Frodo, he'll know what to do. That's how it happens in the film. That shows not just a willingness to go along or a willingness to hear out or check in with Saruman. Um, when Radagast comes and tells him, you know, he needs to speak with you urgently, Gandalf might still distrust him you know, clearly Gandalf doesn't believe, you know, doesn't believe at that point that Saruman has become completely evil um, and has gone completely over, but he can still, even if he were to have distrusted Saruman, as Tolkien retroactively wanted to make it, still he could have gone under those circumstances, you know, f at, at an urgent summons from the trustworthy Radagast. So, but in the film version... Gandalf's trust of Saruman is, like, touchingly naive. I mean, he seems to trust him absolutely. Like, it's the first thing Gandalf thinks of. I shall ride off by myself and go consult with Saruman because that's obviously the best thing to do. Mm. Um, and I'm going to go and for no reason, like, other than my own enthusiasm, tell him everything. And, uh, and you know, and that's going to... That, I mean, so that's basically... That's basically the way that they do the plot in the first film. That would suggest to me that Gandalf, if they're going to be consistent with that, then, you know, Gandalf really can't have any suspicions of Saruman. <clears throat> but, but I don't know. I mean, Gandalf's suspicions of Saruman become a major feature of the, of the White Council plot as Tolkien developed it in the post-Lord of the Rings years. So it's conceivable that they could just, that Jackson could just choose to be slightly inconsistent on that point um, and hope that people aren't going to give that scene this much thought. <laughs> um, but I don't know. That's, uh, that's a pretty interesting point because it, it seems like... <sighs> I don't know. I'm of two minds about this. On the one hand, I wonder if the uh, the white the, all of this white council politicking is um, uh, is maybe a little too 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 much detail and too complicated for the for the average moviegoer person. You know that 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 it's just 
I'm wondering whether they'll introduce that storyline. There's part of me that thinks that that's that's too much, too much. Um, there's a part of me right. that thinks that that is the opposite, which is it's too rich not to show on screen. Yeah, it, exactly. I mean, it's if they just have the White Council, if they make the White Council into essentially like a faceless bunch of yes people, you know, like we are all one unit and there are no interpersonal dynamics involved here whatsoever. Um, we're just going to attack the necromancer in unison. Yeah, I mean, that's going to be that's going to be really boring, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah, I know that's a that's a very interesting point. And and somebody pointed out, um, let's see, who was it? Um, Ed asked the question it, during the the premiere, the red carpet stuff before the premiere on uh, Tuesday or when I guess it was Wednesday technically. Um, they were talking to Hugo Weaving, who has a, an unbelievable beard, by the way. Um, oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> incredible. They, they asked him sort of if he was looking forward to the next films, and he was like, uh, not really, because as far as I know, I'm not in them. Uh, that is interesting. Yeah. Uh, though it, it, does, it does make you wonder. I mean, it actually does help to solve some of the geographical issues um, because it, it makes sense. I mean, g given geography, Gandalf leaves... Bilbo and the dwarves on the edge of Mirkwood and, and hustles down to a White Council meeting. If they're going to launch an attack to Dal Guldur, Lorien is the obvious location for this meeting. Right. Of the and White so, Council. So maybe it won't be the entire White Council, no Elrond, that kind of thing. Right. Exactly. Elrond doesn't have to be there. In fact, Elrond would have to somehow get down there. In the book, he obviously isn't there. I mean, he is explicitly not there in the book. Not yeah. that they have to follow that, because the whole White Council thing obviously developed significantly since then. Um, but Radagast appears not to be in Rivendell when they get what I can't help but think of as when they get to Chapter 3 of the Hobbit book. Um you know, when, when when Gandalf and Bilbo and the dwarves get to Rivendell, they're going to have a meeting. Apparently, Goadriel will have made the trip, um, which means that she and Saruman, and, and, and from the visuals we've seen, Saruman is there too. Yep. So, though Radagast seems not to be. So they are going to meet up um, again. They have to have a different meetup. And so I guess... Goadriel and Saruman are going to go south, which would make sense because both of them live south, and Elrond apparently is not. And so I, get, I mean, it, I, I could imagine it would could make sense to me that uh, the White Council attack on uh, on Dol Guldur would not involve Elrond. Mm -hmm. um, I'd be a little bit surprised, but I don't know. I mean, there is always the, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. I mean, presumably well, just, the actors have seen the cuts of the the the. the well, obviously, they were at the, they were at the uh, premiere. But if the, if that was pre-premiere, anyway, I don't know. Well, it, I mean, what it more had to do with is is what scenes has he filmed, and 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 it's it, you know it could be that he's only filmed scenes with him in Rivendell, which which would be hard right. for him to be. I, it, there's nothing preventing them from filming additional scenes, but he basically he hasn't been told. Um, oh, we need you to come back in May. We got to film some more scenes of you, all that kind of stuff. But it, it, it more just it sort of brings up an interesting question, which is, um, what, you know, what what are they doing with the White Council storyline? Um, and 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 it, it, it I think it informs a little bit on some of these scenes and what the dynamics will be. It, the the scenes we've seen in the trailers seem to emphasize less conflict, uh, you know, over what to do with the necromancer, and more. Um, uh, you know, they, they have these touching scenes with Galadriel and Gandalf 
but yes. but their conversation's not about what to do about um, the necromancer. It seems to be about Bilbo. Yes. So. Yes. Or at least, I mean, you can see that some of those are going to be, you know, world issues conversations. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, that's the main thing that we've seen is this link between Goadriel and Gandalf, and that's fine. The big question to me, the re- one of the reasons that I've been focused on, on Saruman here is that I think that obviously the Saruman issue is the most dynamic White Council issue yeah. Um, yeah. that's out there. You know, yeah, if, we, if we have a... Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, if they don't engage on that, as you were saying, if they don't, if they don't include that in there, there really isn't anything to, to there isn't really any conflict to be had, or, or they'll have to invent right. new conflict, um, and it's just going to be right. a bunch of yes men, like you say. Exactly. And but, but I think they almost have to do it. I mean, we see Saruman fallen, yeah. and we're supposed to. I mean, and everybody understands that this that that was a betrayal. I mean, that you know, that was supposed to be new in the Fellowship of the Ring, the revelation that that Saruman uh, had turned to 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 madness and evil, as Gandalf said in the first film. So, um, if that's the case, there. So, so basically, you know. We have like we're 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 gonna have a white council in which there is like a Darth Vader slash Emperor Palpatine figure, um, and we're getting him pre-fall, so the fall might happen off stage. I mean, it's it is possible that Peter Jackson could make the decision to have Saruman be, you know, at least pretty much a good guy all the way through, and have only the implication that his fall into darkness is gonna happen in the gap between the film sets, um, but. Still, I, I don't think that he can possibly escape making some. It, it, if he doesn't depict the fall, he's got to set it up somehow. I mean, I don't think that you can just expect the audience, I, I, and I would say especially the non-Tolkien fans, for the non-Tolkien fans who only know Saruman as you know one of the villains, they're going to need some explanation for why he's not a villain. And what happens with him? If he is just, you know, he's just a good guy and there's no issues and no problems and neither the viewer nor the other characters have any suspicions of him at any point, it's going to seem, that's not going to even make sense. It's not going to work for people. Yeah. Because I, he was so visibly a major villain. In in fact, in many ways, a more visible villain than Sauron was, of course. Yeah. In terms of... an actor and not just a flaming eyeball. In terms of consistency... So I'm of the opinion that if if they decide that they like that storyline, the storyline of, of of Gandalf being suspicious or or, or Galadriel being suspicious yeah. or whatever, I'm of the opinion that if they decide they like that storyline, then consi- consistency goes out the window. They'd rather they'd rather have a good story in the film now than worry about consistency. Um, and but you you have a good point, which is. The thing I was wondering was if they make the decision not to play that on screen because of an inconsistency, like, well, we can't have people be suspicious of him because they, they, they aren't suspicious of him in the later films. Right, um, right. Then then the next question I have is, will the viewer see evidence right. of, of exactly. Saruman's evil, even if the other characters don't notice it? But you are right. It does undermine the other characters if they don't notice it. But, but you know, setting that aside, will we see evidence? And if they if they don't show if they don't, then we won't see the story of how he fell. All we know is in these three films he was a good guy, and in the next film he's really bad. What happened? Right, and I don't think I I I can't imagine that. I can't imagine 
Jackson letting that sit like that. I mean, he's got a ch- he's he's got the chance to give us some kind of an insight. He's got he's got a chance to make Saruman's Saruman a really interesting character. Basically, we could actually see interesting character movement in Saruman over the course of these films. Not even necessarily the entire fall, um, but but you know something you know and and i it's hard, really hard for me to imagine that they would turn away from that so uh, you know i'm in like very much giving them the benefit of the doubt mode that they're going to want to tell that story that that's too good of a story not to tell um so yeah now as you say if he if because there is that middle ground gandalf and galadriel in particular don't have to be suspicious of him they could trust him, but we, the readers, could see the evidence. We could see things that Goadriel and Gandalf don't see. And so, therefore, um, you know, we could suspect them and he, them not suspect him without them looking like idiots. I mean, I think that that could be done. If anything, it could actually be used to build up Saruman's character to show what a convincing actor he is, um, you know, that he convinces them not to distrust him. Right. So, um, out of curiosity, just uh, um, um, uh, going, setting aside right now what they will do, what would you prefer? Like, are you are you of the school of thought that says they are they are they are held captive to what they did in the previous films? They must be consistent, or would you be more? Is your preference that they tell the best story they can now? You know, uh, Lord of the Rings consistency be damned. Yeah, the the, uh, the latter. Uh, I mean, I am I am I am much I I'm cool with inconsistency if it's necessary. Like I I I can live with that. Um, we'll point it out and laugh at it, but right, sure, exactly, and you know that's fair. But <laughs> but uh, but yeah, no, I I would think that that would be. F- I mean, obviously, like there does come a limit. I think. I mean, if you are wildly inconsistent to. Uh, you know, to some of the basic premises of the previous films, it's going to get really hard to track with. But, um, but some small things. I mean, could they make Gandalf at least a little bit suspicious there, without creating an enormous problem? Yeah, I suspect so. I mean, I'll be interested to see. I'll be surprised though if they go too far on that one, because that would make for, that would create, I think, a pretty big problem with Fellowship of the Ring retroactively. So, I I, I wouldn't think that they would make Gandalf you know, uh, have any certain knowledge yeah. or well, any, or even any grave suspicions. What they could possibly do is is introduce some conflict and some uncertainty and some suspicion and then and then resolve it before the end of the film. Like, oh, I suspected you, Saruman, but but I've changed my mind and maybe maybe Saruman right. tricks them at the end. So, right. I mean, right. Uh, but I, I think I agree with you on the whole. I don't think I want to. I, I I wouldn't want them to be completely inconsistent, like you know, make it ridiculous. But I would prefer because when they made those films, they made them with the belief that the Hobbit would never be ever get made. Right. Um, they weren't right. even sure they would get necessarily get to the end of that trilogy. Well, I guess they did because they filmed it all. But <laughs> right. but well, no, I mean, but when they conceived it, yeah, I mean, it was yeah, it was it was it was a it, uh, that's something I think people forget about that the Lord of the Rings films were a much more doubtful project than you know we remember in retrospect knowing their success. 
Um, <laughs> I'm starting to. I, I'm increasingly um, when I hear people. So, so this is this is a little bit of a non, this is a little bit of a, a, a detour. But um, somebody, I think it was Richard Armitage, during the the red carpet for the premiere, mentioned was was talking about uh, Peter Jackson's uh, vision as a filmmaker and talking about how he was was really really interested in the technology and pushing the boundaries and and innovating in filmmaking and unifying that with story and I had visions of I was thinking of of another famous director with a major franchise that people have said that about George <laughs> Lucas and I started yes. having visions of Peter Jackson like five or ten years from now looking at his Lord of the Rings films and thinking you know there's some things I'd like to go back and fix and clean up there and yes uh, and this could maybe be one of them well let's let's you know let's uh since we made the Hobbit film and we introduced this White Council storyline <laughs> let's go back and make Gandalf a little more you know a little more suspicious of him right right yeah well let's um <laughs> let us uh, I carry on charitably giving Peter Jackson the benefit of the doubt into thinking that he's not going to walk the same path he's not that going George, to George Lucas, Lucas has. <laughs> but, yeah, um, exactly. So, so regarding Saruman's fall, uh, several people have asked the question, um, you know, um, on the timeline, when did, what is kind of the, the, the timeline of his fall? When did he get into Orthanc? Um, when did he look into the Palantir? Did he start going bad before he looked into the Palantir, or or did the Palantir was that a, just a part, one step along the path? Um, um, yes, I believe so. That his going bad, well, and again, this is this is something that sort of depends on where in Tolkien's career you're talking. Um, I, I mentioned that in the post Lord of the Rings years, as he was looking back on this, that Tolkien kept like putting Gandalf higher and higher and higher, and you can see this very clearly in the essay on the Astari that he wrote in Unfinished Tales. At the same time, he's also tearing Saruman down and down and down and, and embedding Saruman's treachery further and further back so that in the essay on the Astari, when he tells the story of uh, you know the spirits in Valinor volunteering uh, to become the Astari and to go to Middle Earth as the messengers of the Valar, as the you know as the servants of the Valar, um, he even then like makes uh, Saruman's motivations kind of sketchy from from the very beginning, um, and Gandalf has to be like hunted down if you know. They're like, hey, where's Aloran? We're really kind of hoping Aloran would show up to this meeting, and Aloran hasn't showed up to the meeting. And so they go to him, and they're like, please, 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 Aloran, would you go? And he's like, well, I don't really want to, but okay. Um, you know, in, in other words, to see his humility, him not putting himself forward, you know, his self-sacrifice in taking this on himself from the beginning, I mean, all of those things. You know, so the the self-sacrifice and humility of Gandalf, the pride and arrogance of and and uh, and and self-serving of Saruman, he began to project all the way back into their Valinor time um, later on. So from that perspective, we have you know him already as like a proto bad guy, you know not not a guaranteed bad guy, not somebody who has already committed himself to that path, um, but already on that path way way back. Um, in the in the in the sort of the the Tolkien um, Middle Earth morality, he even when he wasn't explicitly evil, he always kind of had the wrong orientation. It was always about power and self-aggrandization, which are which are yeah. sort of um, anti-virtues in the uh, right. in the Tolkien mythology, right? Right. Yes. Um, 
Yes, exactly. So, so no, I mean, so that was implicit from the beginning. Um, his corruption was not caused um, by this by the stone. I mean, he seems to have, um, he wanted to set up power for himself. It seems that one of the reasons he wanted to get Orthanc is that he knew that there were secrets there and was hoping to get the Palantir, but that he didn't even use the Palantir. So basically his desire to get the Palantir was because he was already desiring power for himself. He did not um, use the Palantir to look over at, uh, at, at Mordor right away. You know, he, so he was not immediately snared by Sauron. Um, but he was already seeking his own power. And if anybody has it and can help me find it, I can't find the date because I'm really, I'm really bad at doing two things at once. And so I'm talking and therefore not able to read. Which um, date? I can't find the date when he gets Orthanc. It's given to him by... The stewards I think, of Gondor, right? One yeah, of I think Baron, the steward yes, of Gondor. I think you're right. Um, but uh, I can't find the date. Um, I'm sure one of the listeners will, and I'm Googling it right yeah. now. So if somebody can find that for me, I would appreciate it. Um, but uh, anyway, so um, but so, so he's so yeah, I think his his downward slope has already been, he's he is seeking power for himself uh, prior to getting ensnared. Downward slope. But, yeah, he's definitely on the downward slope. Uh, he hasn't he hasn't yet. Uh, he hasn't yet gone off the cliff. Is but it he's, twice he's... continuously differentiable? <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Um, Baron, it was the steward Baron. Yes, the steward Baron, it definitely is. Um, um, let's see. Uh, and he declared himself... 2759, Sharon? Okay. And he declared himself. Yes, Saruman takes up his abode in Isengard. That's it. Thank he declared you, himself. Uh, he declares himself Lord of Isengard in twenty nine fifty three. Right, and that's that's pretty late. That's when he. That's after the Hobbit. That's well, um, yeah, that's well after his 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 fall. Yeah, so I mean, at that point, he's already. Um, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the time of the last meeting of the White Council. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and and by the way, just to remind people, since we're doing Tale of Years, little footnote: Aragorn is eight years old at the time of the at the time of the Hobbit. Um, so, uh, if we're doing an accurate cameo in Rivendell, look for an eight-year-old boy. Um, but uh, okay, um, so right, so 1759. So putting that in the context of other things, um, we're talking a hundred years before, a um, hundred years after. A little bit less than 100 years, like 90 years after he takes up his abode in Isengard, he is arguing against Gandalf that, the, you know, when Gandalf discovers, hey, it's Sauron over there in Dol Guldur, let's kick him out, and Saruman, for his own clearly crooked reasons, says no. That's 90 years later on. Um, but I think that, you know, we, we, I don't think that, you know, to, I think that we're supposed to think even Treebeard's comments about Isengard, about uh, about Isengard, and about about um, Saruman. When Treebeard looks back on the conversations that he used to have with Saruman a long time before, um, and he makes his comment about, uh, you know, that Saruman's eyes were always like, you know, uh, were always like, you know, were like mirrors that he that he was concealing his own thoughts and his own purposes. Um, 
that seems to predate that stuff too. So again, I think that we are to understand that Saruman might not do anything irrevocable until later on. He might not, it might be until 2953 when he declares himself the Lord of Isengard. That's his first moment of actual rebellion. Though again, he hasn't, be, he hasn't revealed that he's betraying the council. Um, he's, that's his first overt power grab on his own. But even then, the Rohirrim consider him their, their ally right? So he's still pretending to be a good guy, even while he's taking more power. But he's been on this path for a while. So, um, so no, I, I mean, again, like all of the rest of these events, um, these events span centuries in the actual history of Middle-earth as Tolkien wrote it. Um, and obviously these things, and by these things, I mean the discovery, Gandalf's discovery that the necromancer is Sauron and they're deciding what to do about it and uh, Saruman trying to work against them but still pretending to be a good guy. Those things happen over the course of hundreds of years um, you know, in meetings of the White Council that are separated by decades and decades. Um, obviously these things are all going to be compressed because they're going to be taking part in the film. The whole, who is this necromancer guy and we should be worried and maybe it's something really serious and maybe he's Sauron and then we we discover he's Sauron, and then we try to do something about it. All that's going to happen within the course of the films. Yeah, and I, I suspect that the fall of Saruman is going to be kind of compressed into that too. But we have reason to think there is book precedent to believe that basically from the beginning, Saruman is already on his path. You know, he is. There isn't a, a moment. You know, it's not like, you know. And it's hard to avoid. I've made Darth Vader parallels several times, but that's the that's the sort of the the canonical model, right? Of like the 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 fall into darkness, the choosing the dark side. Um, you know, I don't think we're gonna get we're not gonna get like an Anakin Skywalker of Saruman here. <laughs> you mean um, like like a single moment where he just completely falls? Right, exactly. I don't think we're going to get, you know, him like losing a loved one or something like that. I mean, Saruman is already on the path. He's not revealed himself. He's not taken there there you know, he there are some things he hasn't done yet. He's not started breeding orcs. He's not uh, you know, he's he's not he's not building an army. He probably hasn't started communicating uh in the Palantir with Mordor, but he's already on his path to increase his own power. Um, and he's already looking, he's already wanting the ring of power for himself. Um, <laughs> Billy so Zabel wants just... to know, uh, Billy Zabel wants to know if, uh, if uh, uh, Saruman's going to kill his own wife. Right, is he going to kill his wife? Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, and I'm sure that, and then he's going to shake his fists and go, no! <laughs> at the end. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that's what's going to happen. So, um, um... Uh, not to not to not to throw a wet blanket on this conversation, but um, somebody did point out that that Christopher Lee has in a in several interviews mentioned that uh, that he that he shot only about four days worth of scenes and that in all of them he was playing um, Saruman as a noble, kindly wizard before he fell into evil. Right, and that's interesting. I mean, I I I I, I can see that. I mean. Maybe they will opt for not having the fall of Saruman, not having anybody suspect him, not having anything to. I mean, maybe they'll just maybe they'll take that plot out. Maybe it is too complicated for the films. Or I, I mean, don't know. It could be maybe they fell prey to more practical considerations, like Christopher Lee is getting getting on in years and unable to travel to New Zealand or do a lot of intensive filming, and uh, 
Right. We basically just want to get him. We just want to give him a cameo and make sure he, he shows his his face on screen because um, it'd be weird if he didn't. So, right. I don't right. know. I'm I'm still. It, it's such a good storyline. It, it seems hard to imagine that they wouldn't try to do something with it. And I never I never take the actors at face value. I always consider the possibility that either they're confused or they're feeding us misinformation or. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. True. Always possible. And um, I don't know. Um, somebody... like I, said, I, I, I do think it would be it would be a shame for them not to make any attempt at it. And and again, I think it would it would be something that would require explanation. I mean, if um, people are going to want to are going to want to know, like, how does Saruman end up evil? Um, if there's not even any gesture towards an explanation of, you know, no, he's just a complete good guy in this movie. You know, stop mm-hmm. asking questions. That's going to be hard, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I think I think people will be looking for that evidence. So, um, yeah, somebody a long time ago, I don't remember who it was. Somebody proposed the theory that uh, that that <laughs> that at some point um, Radagast the Brown, maybe in the next film, would discover evidence of Saruman's treachery and would be killed by him in the uh, in the Battle of Dol Guldur, and the, and that would be an explanation for his his absence from the later films. And your little hedgehog too. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I kind of like that idea. Actually, um, it would be—I mean, Christopher Lee's playing it real close to the vest. If he filmed a murdering Radagast scene and is not letting on about yes. it, yes. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, which, and as you say, can't rule it out. Um, but uh, yeah, so you know, I, I don't know. I mean, hey, look, I. I I could also see, for instance, um, you know, you were asking before, like, what I would prefer. Mm-hmm. Okay, here's what I would do. I would say, have I, I really like the idea that uh, Yana had mentioned before um, that um, Gandalf and Galadriel, that the Battle of Dol Guldur is basically like Gandalf and Galadriel just doing a doing a vigilante thing. You know, that this is not an official decree of the White Council, but that Gandalf and Galadriel you know, have a little side conversation and they're like, okay, let's take matters into our own hands. So Gandalf and Galadriel sneak off and the two of them try to take on the necromancer and kick him out. And uh, so I, I love that idea, that which explains why Elrond isn't there. Um, so we have Gandalf and Galadriel. So Gandalf leaves Bilbo and, uh, and the dwarves and he goes down to Lorien and he says to Galadriel, all right, let's hat up and go after the necromancer. And Galadriel's like, you know, I, okay, you know, yippee-ki-yay, and off they go to Dol Guldur to attack Sauron, and they're about to lose, and Saruman comes and rescues them. Saruman comes in and, like, says, like, yeah, I knew I'd have to pull your bacon out of the fire, and they're like, uh, like, Saruman, you're a dude. Um, But, of course, we can know, the reader, the, the audience could know that, like, he had his own motivations, right, that he knows that Sauron is searching for the One Ring, and Saruman wants it for himself, and it provides the perfect cover for Saruman to appear like a good guy, and in fact to increase the confidence that Gandalf and Goadriel have in him, while he's still doing it for crooked reasons. So, that would be, and if he wants to, like, off Radagast and his bunnies and his hedgehog at the same time, you know, like, he could do that. But, Tony um, Mead pointed out that Gandalf's staff in The Lord of the Rings looks looks ominously like Radagast the Brown's staff in these films. <laughs> And, you know, maybe it's like, uh, you know, you remember at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring film when uh, when when uh, 
Aragorn takes Boromir's bracer, right, and is yep. uh, strapping it on in the in the final scene. So you know, maybe it's just that. Maybe maybe he takes it off of Radagast's corpse and is like, I will always use this staff in noble memory of of uh, you know my friend whose whose body I just looted. Um, so but, um, uh, another yeah. thing to consider, um, uh, which I want to use to transition into the question of. Uh, um, who do we actually know is on the White Council, and then which of them do we? I, I think we know who's going to appear in the films. I don't think we're going to be seeing Kierd on the shipwright, but but I lo- yeah. would like to review who was actually on the White Council. One thing to to consider is we keep thinking about one single monolithic White Council storyline, but there's actually we've seen scenes of White Council characters in variety of places addressing different topics. So we have right. seen. Um, Galadriel and Gandalf talking about the Hobbit, about Bilbo. Right. Um, nothing. We haven't seen any scenes of them discussing necromancers or anything like that. We have seen Gandalf at Dol Guldur um, fighting um, what seemed to be Thrain. Um, we've heard rumors of a confrontation between Gandalf and Bolg, who is supposedly a guard at Dol Guldur. Um, mm-hmm. We have seen scenes of the council sitting around discussing um, the uh, the 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 tomb of the of the Nazgul and the right with uh, that with an ominous dagger. Yeah, on the, the Morgul blade. We have yeah. seen scenes of Elrond straight from the book talking to the dwarves about their uh, their quest and being his usual judgmental self and telling them it was a terrible yes. idea. Um, And we've seen scenes of Radagast the Brown um, riding around on his bunny sleigh in uh, in Mirkwood and and with with voiceovers of him saying a dark power has found a way to return into the world, things like that. There's a possibility that maybe and and there's also this additional storyline of Azog returning from the dead or, or all that. I wonder if. It's possible that that actually there isn't going to be a single White Council storyline, but rather there's going to there'll maybe be the one single White Council scene in in the first Hobbit film of them sitting around talking about a lot of these things. But then from then on, different White Council members will be involved in different storylines. Yeah, I mean, I I, I I certainly think I mean that brings up an important clarification that I should arguably have made at the beginning. That you know basically what we mean when we talk about the White White Council storyline. I think of the White Council storyline as basically everything involved with the question of who the necromancer really is and culminating in the Battle of Dol Guldur. I mean, all of that stuff, Bilbo and the dwarves are not connected with that. You know, that's not their story. Their story has nothing to do with the necromancer um, and has nothing to do with, uh, you know, the the concerns of the wise and everything. Um, you know, from the from the later perspective, from the quest with the quest of Erebor stuff and everything like that, we see Gandalf involved in both things at the same time. And the tale of years again makes this it, it, it becomes very dramatically apparent uh, in the tale of years that the whole quest of Erebor thing, you know, the whole the whole trip to the Lonely Mountain is one little small side issue in. And, and very much secondary to what is for Gandalf the important story. And for Gandalf, clearly the important story is the necromancer and what's going on there and whether that's Sauron or not. Um, and he's only even interested in the Lonely Mountain, really, in as much as it relates to that larger issue. So the two things are connected, of course, through Gandalf, um, and he's the one who's directly involved in both. However... Um, when I refer to the White Council storyline, I think we've been doing this fairly consistently all the way through. We're talking about that other story. We're talking about that, you know, the 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 
the question of, of Sauron and the Necromancer, um, and ultimately leading towards what we have been calling the Battle of Dol Guldur, um, when at least elements of the White Council attack, uh, attack the Necromancer, and he withdraws before them and goes to Mordor as he had planned. Um, and it is not a defeat, but uh, simply a removal on Sauron's part. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, I, I certainly agree with you. It, it certainly, I don't, I would not really necessarily expect that it would develop as a, as a, as a separate plot in the same way that, um, you know, you have, for instance, the lead up to the Battle of Pelennor Fields plot line and the Frodo and Sam go to Mordor plot line, you know, in, uh, um, in the, Two Towers and the Return of the King. I wouldn't expect the White Council plot and the Quest of Erebor plot to be divided in that same way in these films. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, when Gandalf leaves, we're going to have some alternative action. You know, we're we are clearly going to have some Gandalf and probably Galadriel um, doing something with Dol Guldur at the same time that Bilbo and the dwarves are going through Mirkwood and getting captured by spider by spiders and elves and that kind of thing. Yep. So, um, so there we're going to have to have some divided action. But yeah, I mean, it may not be really a uni- as you say, a unified White Council action. Um, we don't have any obvious evidence to support that, um, since we don't know. We, we, I mean, as far as the the White Council acting as a unit. To answer your question from before, though, who is in the White Council exactly? That's never real. We don't. We don't ever get like. We don't get like the minutes of the White Council. You know, we never get. You know, like though. Actually, that would be awesome. Um, uh, you know, the minutes of the White Council meetings. Um, <laughs> that, in fact, that would be that. That would be that would I think be a particularly hilarious piece of fan fiction. I have to say. Um, but anyway. <laughs> That was always one um, of my favorite parts about the the Council of uh, Elrond, because you get you get some 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 interactions like that, like people, various random elves interjecting with comments, and then Gandalf beating them down. And right, right, exactly, exactly. Um, so yeah, no, we don't we don't we don't get them, but um, so you know, so for instance, that's exactly um, the elves you mentioned at the Council of Elrond. Um, I mean, it says it's it's a meeting of the wise. Well, who counts as the wise. I mean, obviously, uh, you know, Círdan and Elrond and Galadriel count. Um, is Celeborn there? Uh, that's a question that hits kind of close to home, but it's not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily a, 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 a slam dunk either way. What about Gorfindel? Is Gorfindel there? What about Arrestor? Galdor from the Haven seems to be there, seems to be Círdan's representative uh, at the Council of Elrond. Mm-hmm. If Círdan could show up, is Galdor there? Does Galdor sub in for Círdan and carry his proxy? I don't know. You know, I, I, we're never really told exactly how many people are there. Um, is it just, as again, I presume, unless I'm told otherwise, and I don't believe I am, um, I presume that Radagast is there. So was the total attendance at White Council meetings something like Gandalf, Saruman, Radagast, Galadriel, Elrond, and maybe Círdan and maybe not? I mean, was that it? Um, were there more? Did we get Gorfindel and the rest of the you know other you know other prominent elves? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, we're just not told that. Um, so, uh, so I mean, that certainly leaves them open to sort of do to do what they want with it. You know, one question, are, are, are they going to use the phrase White Council? 
I mean, is that even going to actually come up um, in the film? It might not. Um, hmm. You know, I, 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 I don't think that that's necessary. Um, that that is that's a really interesting point, and and it's actually that I mean, who refers to where is the term White Council introduced in the text? Do they refer to themselves as the White Council, or is that is that one of those sort of uh, narrator terms? Well, it's certainly a narrator term in the Tale of Years. Um, Gandalf, let's see, does Gandalf use it in passing in the Fellowship of the Ring? Um, he talks about his order, the head of the council. Um, so there is a reference to the council. There are references to the council. Um, That's true. But nobody, like, backs up and explains it exactly. Um I always wonder. I always wonder if that's one of those sort of names assigned to it, labels assigned to it Glad- by, by kind of the. Gladriel, I think, uses it. Maybe, yeah. Gladriel, I think, does. Um, Interesting. Yeah. But but it, it's you're right. It's not hard to imagine, especially when the the council quote unquote council scenes will involve characters we already know and are familiar with their role in the world. Elrond, Gandalf, right. Saruman. Um, uh, Gladriel. I mean, Radagast the Brown, I don't, it really doesn't look like he's going to be sharing the scene with that group. It looks like he's going to be off doing his own thing. Um, so, there, there but isn't really... I would really not necess- be surprised to see him involved in the latter parts. Um, yes. Again, once with Gandalf and Gladriel. Um, but, because... But never in a, but never turf. in a quote-unquote, like a sort of a, 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 a explicit quote-unquote council scene where they sitting around the right. table talking like a council scene so right. yeah no he doesn't seem to have a seat at the table yeah there isn't necessarily any re- like it's i wonder where the term would be introduced like you know some 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 elven runner comes running up to gandalf when he's talking to the dwarves right. hey you're late for the white council meeting buddy <laughs> right right white council meeting yeah exactly um which which conference room which conference room do they have a projector right, exactly. set up <laughs> Is Radagast right. the Brown going to Skype it? <laughs> right. Right. Well, I mean, hey, if people are Skyping in, then, uh, you know, uh, Alatar and Palando could Skype in from That's out right. from out east. You know? so, so you're right. Maybe it will never actually be named on screen. It, it, it seems like one of those terminal. It seems like one of those terms that could easily be sort of it, – it would be a, a nice – uh, Easter egg for for fans like us, like oh White Council, but but it could be you know it might leave the mainstream audience thinking what the heck are they talking about? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. it was never it was never mentioned in Lord of the Rings or anything like that. Hmm, that's an interesting question. Yep. So yep. So who who is confirmed to be on it? So we know we know for a fact that that um well, I mean, Gandalf, Radagast, three... Saruman, Gladriel, Elrond are the are the blue wizards. Members of the White Council? I, they, they never come into the story. I mean, they're never involved anywhere in the western part of Middle-earth. Um, so I don't think they're ever physically present. I don't think it's um, plausible that, you know, in the last 500 years of the of the Third Age that they're going to be able to be present. I mean, they're going to be hundreds of leagues away. So, um, so, yeah, no, I don't think there's any hint of that. So, yeah, I would think the three wizards who are available... Um, plus at least those three Elven Wise. I mean, those are the those those are like the the three no-brainer. Like if there if there are three Elves who are who are who who count as among the Wise, it's obviously Galadriel, Elrond, and Círdan. So those are to me the only ones that you can absolutely assume are, um, you know, are part of the equation, are part of the Wise. But 
you know, again, Gorfindel, I mean, you know, I'd invite Gorfindel if it were me, but, I, you know, I don't know for sure. Um, you know, I would think that, uh, I would think that he probably was, but I can't, I can't think, maybe I'm overlooking something. Um, you know, maybe, maybe there's references that I'm blanking on, but I can't remember any, uh, any more explicit reference to who all was involved um, in the White Council, even whether it was a very large or, or a comparatively small group. But, um, but anyway, I, I would say, um, I'd say kind of focusing in on the sort of I, I, we kind of wandered around a lot. Let's sort of go back to issues for the film. And first of all, one thing I wanted to explain never do was, that. yeah, no, exactly. One of the um, one of the reasons that I've been focusing on Saruman a lot in my discussions and in my stuff from the books is that that is to me one of the biggest questions. You know, here as we are, you know, a, a scant two weeks uh, from you know two weeks from today, this film is released here, uh, you know, in America. Um, you know, at, at this point, one of the one of the things we still really don't know much about is Saruman. Uh, you know, we've seen very little of him. We've seen lots of Gandalf and Galadriel in trailers and stuff. We've seen images of Saruman. We know he's there, but it's to me, you know, when I when I was thinking about the White Council in preparation for this, um, as uh, you know, as as you the listeners voted on the White Council. Um, I, that was to me the biggest question mark that's still up in the air is what are they going to do with Saruman stuff because the alliance between Galadriel and, and Gandalf is pretty clear that's very solid in the books and um, and it's quite obvious that they're going to be bringing that into the films um, the Saruman question was to me the biggest one I don't think it's the only question you know will we get any unified action what will be the discussions what is up with that with that Morgul blade, you know, that's going to, you know, because we talked about that a long time ago, but we talked about that in the context of the CinemaCon revelation, which significantly predated the three film division. Um, when we were talking about the tomb of the Nazgul, uh, and you know, the Tomb of the Ringwraiths, which is presumably still going to be involved, but apparently not going to happen until film two. Um, if that's the case, then what is this knife and where did they get it? Because when we talked about that, the Morgul blade issue, we were always connecting it with the Tomb of the Nazgul thing. Mm -hmm. um, as, the only way I can understand this from what we've been told is that they are somehow going to have, maybe Galadriel will bring it, I don't know. But somebody's going to bring this knife and say, this has been found somehow, this is a Morgul blade, and it suggests that Sauron is at work here in the world, what's going on, we need to figure this out. And then... Gandalf is like, okay, I'm headed that way. I'll look into it. And so when he leaves Bilbo and the dwarves, he's going to go and and explore and like find the tombs of the, of the Nazgul, I guess. You know, again, this is me just guessing based upon the stuff that we've been told. Um, that would make, I mean, I guess that would make, I mean, the tomb of the Nazgul thing I still think is strange, and, and it still ranks... Um, you know, even after all of the things that have been revealed, in my mind, it still ranks as the strangest thing I've heard about the Hobbit films. Um, I the don't think there's the anything Nazgul? I find. Yeah, I don't think there's anything I find weirder than the tomb, the the, the whole tombs of the Nazgul concept. Do you uh, do you think there's any chance that that I mean that was in some really early footage that was released? Do you think there's any chance that maybe they changed their minds and said, uh, "Let's cut that"? 
you know, hope springs eternal. I don't know. I don't know. Well, they just um, they have so many um so many uh storylines that they're developing for this idea of evil returning to the world. Azog, Bolg, Smaug, Necromancer, blah blah blah. Yeah. And it's just and and they're and and it and in terms of time, it seems like they in this first film they're really only going to have time for one. Like let's pick one as Evidence. Well, I guess maybe they could have more than one, but uh, I wonder if there's a possibility that maybe they thought that the the necromancer scene doesn't make as much sense, or uh, the the Nazgul scene with the way they're cutting things, it doesn't make much sense to include it in the first film because there's not not a smooth way to introduce that. If Gandalf's not, if we're not gonna have scenes of Gandalf infiltrating a tomb or Dol Guldur or whatever it is in the first film, maybe it doesn't make any sense to include that that reference, or maybe maybe it'll get pushed to the second film or something. But but I think the Azog thing, you know, it sounds like Azog is gonna be pursuing the company or something although we haven't seen explicit scenes of this yet i don't know that's yeah, a good and i good yeah, and i still don't get that i mean i still don't feel even after all the stuff that's been revealed about the orcs and the goblins and stuff like that i still don't feel that i have a sense of what they're doing as far as the you know political relationships between the goblins of the misty mountains and the bog azog group mm-hmm. um it's the one thing that is clear is that they're you know because of the images that they've released, especially of Bolg and the Great Goblin and and all of those, um, are that they are physically differentiating those. I mean, obviously Bolg is a different breed of orc entirely than the Goblins of the Misty Mountains. So, um, you know, he's they're 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 clearly working on the orc goblin divide that the films have kind of invented, um, though you know. Again, for understandable reasons that I have no problem with, but um, but uh, but yeah, like what that means, and uh, and you know, are they connected at all? Are they just utterly independent? Um, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I still don't feel like I have any clear sense of the 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 Bolg and Azog plot. I mean, which I guess is a good thing. There should be some things which are a surprise when we see the film. Um, and uh, you know, a whole lot has been revealed um, with as much. Talking as we've done about this film and as much as we've thought about the different aspects and speculated about different ways they could do things, and as carefully as you know as we've been watching for any you know news or leaks or anything else that's been revealed about these films, um, I certainly feel less in suspense about this movie than I have about any movie I've perhaps ever gone to see. Um, you know, I feel like, because, you know, now even the trailers, you know, I like, every time I see a trailer, I'm like, yep, okay, yep, yep, okay, check, check, check. Um, you know, that's pretty much what I thought. That's pretty much, you know, what we had concluded would be happening. Um, that's true. But, uh, so, you know, it doesn't doesn't surprise me that there would be Utterly some ruined it for ourselves. <laughs> well, no, I don't see, I don't think it's ruined. I mean, this is, uh, this is actually something, uh, a, a, a broad kind of uh, hobby horse of mine actually is I in general think that um, the the whole spoiler issue, I mean I think that if something can be genuinely ruined uh, by your being told about it in advance then it was not really a very compelling story to begin with Right. Um, and I mean certainly obviously there is you know, even in a really good and well-told story, you can't ever recover your first impression. You know, and and uh, if you get uh, 
I mean, certainly if, if, if something is told to you in advance and the story is not allowed to unfold in the way it was intended to unfold, you know, it's not going to have the same effect. So I, I still think that, you know, spoilers can alter your experience of the story the first time. But again, um, the whole concept, the whole word spoilers, like it really, if it's really spoiled, then, I mean, then it's not, it's not a good story. I mean, I think this is true even of things like mysteries, you know, like detective stories and stuff. I mean, you can say, well, if you really know who the murderer is all along, then there's no point in reading the story. But again, I, I say that if that's true, um, if the story has no interest other than the suspense you're other in. Other than the gimmicky, about... the gimmicky reveal, yeah. Yeah, then then it's a crappy story. I'm I mean, sorry. Maybe, yeah, like, maybe maybe it's maybe by finding something like that, like like Ed Ed suggests the sixth sense. You know, yes, if you were told ahead of time, he, Bruce will. Oh God, I hope surely everyone's seen it by now. Bruce Willis is dead. <laughs> if you're told right. Bruce Willis is dead, then yes, it will spoil that first watching, the reveal of that first watching. But but you know, like people buy the movie and go back and rewatch it, which means it's a good right. film. Um, and, and that you can enjoy it even knowing, even knowing the way the ending is versus some of some other films, many of them by M. Night Shyamalan, where he does, you know, where they do similar things with a gimmicky reveal at the end, where knowing that you never rewatch the film, that that's the difference between a bad film and a good film, a good film. You can rewatch it knowing full well what the ending is and still enjoy it. I mean, it's not like people don't reread the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit over and over again. Right. 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 Exactly. And, and and like I said, even in, you know, I, I was pointing to, you know, detective mysteries as one genre, which is sort of like most obviously relying upon uh, the reveal at the end and the, the revelation of the secret. Um, but even those, when they're well written, I mean, if you, you, you can go back and reread, you know, uh, like uh, Dorothy Sayers' Lord Peter Whimsey novels or Agatha Christie's best uh detective novels. I mean, a really well-written novel, you'll actually, you, there will things you'll, you'll appreciate more the second and third time reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, even though you know, if, you know, because you know what happened at the end. Um, so, so yeah, in general, I'm not, so this is why I don't worry about having spoiled it. I mean, I'm going to have, in many ways, a, rich, a richer appreciation of things, having thought it through so carefully in advance. Um, you know, I'm going to, It's my yes, my experience will be different than if I were just wandering off the street saying, like, oh, look, a movie about The Hobbit. Um, but... Um, but yeah, so this is why. But but nevertheless, I do try to be sensitive to people's objections about spoilers. So um, for example, really we won't care. do in, we if you if you manage to see an early screening, we will not be releasing an episode a day later, three days before. No, well, I will. I will. It's there is a chance that I will see the film prior to our last episode, but I will be so discreet if we do. If if I do, I promise not to spoil anything for people. Yes. To uh, any, at least any more, any, any, any more beyond what we've already done by spoiling, exactly. by, by ruining exactly. your viewing of it, by filling your head with all these uh, questions and ideas. Right. No, it's not enriching. It's not ruining. It's enriching <laughs> the so, viewing um, with all of these speculations. A few, a few sort of miscellaneous questions regarding sort of white general white council storyline in the film. Uh, Billy asked the question: No mortals on the council. No, no mortals on the council. It's interesting. Um, yeah, no, not so far as I know. Not I mean, even a, I, no, not even like a like a some kind of new great Numenorean king. Or I mean, I guess by this nope. point there really aren't very many of those left. But 
No, I mean, really, the only, the only, I mean, who are they going to invite? Like the King yeah. of Rohan and the Steward of Gondor, conceivably? I mean, those are really, I mean, Aragorn conceivably would be, right? The Chieftain of the Dúnedain? <laughs> I, I guess the, the, I guess the truth be told, the mortals wouldn't have much to contribute when you're meeting once every three to four hundred years. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. That's why it's kind of irrelevant. I mean, you got to, yeah, spend exactly. It, every meeting, yeah. you'd spend your whole time catching up the new mortal representatives. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, it's clearly an immortal thing. I mean, when, when you've got the, the business of it spans, you know, 500 years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Even but, the, even the Dunedain are not really good candidates. And, and, and it's interesting, this kind of gets at sort of this idea of, of, you know, I'm going to butcher this paraphrasing this quote, but, but Gandalf's point about sometimes, sometimes, you know, the, uh, the, Great deeds must be done by small hands when the eyes of the the great or wise or whatever are elsewhere. I mean, the, the, this mm-hmm. White Council sort of thing is is fits neatly into that. That these are the people yes. who whose job is to take the long view and watch over Middle Earth and meet every few hundred years and keep an eye on things. And you know, they did a few things here and there, drove the necromancer out, but but in the end. Really, most of the really important stuff gets ends up getting done by hobbits and men. Right. Right. Yep. <clears throat> yep. Exactly. Um, but but you're right. This this does show the other side of things. I mean, it does show what the wise are like up to, basically. You know that they're that they're not doing nothing. And one of the one of the one of their achievements, or at least one of the things they thought was a great achievement, was uh, was the Battle of Dol Guldur. You know, the attack on the necromancer. Um, which certainly at the end of The Hobbit sounds like it was a great thing that accomplished something, um, even though it turns out not to have been so great or not to have been as big a deal as it kind of seemed at the time. Um, You know, that whole, like, we have entered a new, you know, a new spring of joy and peace that it looks like we're getting at the end of The Hobbit turns out not to really pan out so much. Um, Not in the big term, not not in the... not in the big picture, though arguably I guess we do get, like, 50 years of peace after that, but... Mm -hmm. Um, But again, Um, in the big picture, not so much. uh, uh, Andrew Higgins inquired about uh, Bjorn being on the White Council, but I think that's an easy one to answer. He didn't know Gandalf, so he couldn't have been. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep. Um, and it doesn't. He yeah. seems he seems very Tom Bombadilish. He seems like the sort of guy that wouldn't wouldn't be that interested. He's much more interested in his kind of his little his little neck of the woods. Right, which is what's so interesting about the end of Bjorn's story. Um, I was just re- reflecting on the. You're, you're going to laugh at me, but I just finished rereading the audiobook of my book yesterday. I was in DC recording the last like eight chapters of my book, um, and what you're going to laugh at me about is. You know, I was rereading my own book <laughs> when it was the first time I'd read a couple of those chapters in many months, uh, almost a year actually. And uh, I mean, I'd looked over them and stuff. But it's been at least six six months since I've read some of those things. And yeah, you know, the the part about Bjorn in particular, I was like, hey, that's kind of a good point. I haven't thought about that in a long time. <laughs> but, um, good insight, Professor. <laughs> I know. I was like, hey, that. That was kind of good, but it's come true. up with this stuff. I know it's it's one of the delightful things about getting senile. But anyway, so um, so the business about Bjorn, the point that I made about Bjorn in the in the last chapter of the book, or second to last chapter, um, 
the choice that Bjorn makes to to turn away from that kind of Tom Bombadilish life, you know, where he chooses when he comes back from the Battle of Five Armies, instead of just going back to his quiet life with his animal friends, he calls a conclave of the of the woodmen, you know, of the people who live in the region, invites them all around to come and join him for a feast, and that's the beginning of what's going to become the Bjornings. I mean, that that's what he's going to become a great chief, but he really initiates that. He really makes that contact contact and decides he's going to stop being a recluse and instead he's going to be a leader. And I think that that's a really, um, that's, a, that's, that's for Bjorn's character in particular, that's sort of a fascinating moment, but it does come at the end of The Hobbit. It's only then that he chooses to go outwards. Prior to that, he certainly is Tom Bombadilish in the sense of being restricted. Um, that, you know, that he... Well, isn't just mind his own business. He minds the business of the goblins also, but um, but he's really kind of doing his own thing. Um, Thus begins his baking empire. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, yep. So a couple other miscellaneous questions that are more kind of about Sauron um, and, and maybe his interaction with the White Council storyline. Uh, this, this one's a little far field, but I think it's an interesting one. Chuck Snow asks... Uh, is there any possibility – and I guess actually this this goes to both sort of the lore of the book but then also what they might portray on, portray on screen. Uh, we've raised the question before of, of coordination between Smaug and the Necromancer. Um, uh, Chuck, Chuck, but Chuck sort of looks at – is pushing it sort of earlier. Is the possibility of, of a hint of coordination between Smaug and Sauron even before Smaug's original attack on the Lonely Mountain that maybe – Sauron helped facilitate that or, or instigated it in order to drive the dwarf ring out of the mountain. I think that that is entirely possible. Um, I could easily imagine that. You know, it is one of the things which, you know, and I believe when we talked about this months ago, mm -hmm. we were saying, I really wonder how they're going to do that. And I do too. You know, are they going to, are they going, you know, how, to what extent, if any, are they going to make those two things connected? Are they going to make Sar Sauron um, working actively together with Smaug? Um, that is clearly part of the big picture. I think they almost have to connect those two things uh, from the point of view that they are, from this whole post-Lord of the Rings, Quest of Erebor kind of perspective that they're, tell that they're clearly telling this story from. Um, that's you know, a huge part of the concern, is that there's no coincidence here, that, that there is a link between the two. Um, now, Tolkien never does suggest that Smaug is working for Sauron when he comes down. All he says is that given that there is a dragon in the mountain, um, Sauron could use him to terrible effect. Um, that's, that Smaug would either, would either work for or work with Sauron. Um, and that Sauron could either compel or win Smaug's allegiance. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it makes a lot of sense to me that they would do it that way, that they would actually imply, at least, that uh, Smaug's attack on the Dwarven Kingdom, that he's trying to, either that he's trying to, to, to flush out the Dwarf Ring and recapture it, um, or that he is just trying to weaken the north of Middle-earth. I mean, create the situation that Gandalf's so worried about at the beginning of Quest of Erebor. Namely, that you've got this dragon up there in the north and nothing, you know, and almost nothing um, standing in the way of, you know, the, the, the advance of, Sa of, of Sauron with a dragon as, as his ally through northern Middle-earth um, other than 
you know what the like the ancestors of the Rohirrim and and uh, you know there's some men in through there but not very many and so that basically there's almost nobody between Sauron and and Rivendell um, up there. Um, so you, one could easily imagine taking the next really quite logical step to saying that that's in, that's in fact exactly the situation that Sauron was trying to uh, bring about, um, and that it was part of his overall strategy. Um, so yeah, I could easily imagine that. Um, that's going to be tricky, though. I don't know how they would give that kind of backstory. Yeah. Um, you know, Did, I mean, how are they going to, I mean, are, are, are we going to get like an earlier scene? Are we going to get a flashback to uh, Benedict Cumberbatch sitting around and talking to himself? Um, you know, <laughs> the, the conference between the necromancer and Smaug. Yes, um, at, the, at the Black Council. <laughs> right, exactly, the, the Black Council the, meeting of the, the dragon. Necromancer, Smog, the Necromancer, Smaug, uh, Azog, the, the, Lord, the right, Great Azog, Goblin. Azog, the Lord of the, of, of the, of the, the of the Nazgul, yeah, exactly. After he's escaped from his tomb. <laughs> right. The mouth of Sauron acting as secretary and taking minutes, you know. <laughs> somebody somebody commenting on how somebody commenting on how much like Tom Bombadil, Shelop never bothers to show up for these things. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. It's not even worth inviting Shelob. <laughs> she wouldn't come even if we invited her. That's right. That's right. Yeah, we might as well invite the squid. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, the Balrog, right? Yeah, right, why not? Let's bring the Balrog into this discussion. That's right. <laughs> um but uh but yeah, no, so I mean I, I I I really don't see how that could be done on screen plausibly. Um unless you get some kind of I mean, if we do get the one thing I could imagine is if we do get dialogue from the necromancer, which again it looks like we're gonna, or they wouldn't have cast Cumberpatch as the necromancer. Um, if the necromancer at any point mentions the dragon and alludes, you know, we could get through dialogue from the necromancer, you know, him calling the dragon his ally or something like that. Um, you know, thus suggesting that he, you know, and and kind of implying that he put him up to it. Our uh, our our gridmaster Ben suggests that perhaps the way Benedict Cumberbatch speaks to himself is by talking to the mouth of Sauron. <laughs> yes, conceivably, maybe. Um, maybe. <clears throat> so um, so there's no there's no explicit evidence of this kind of coordination between Sauron and Smaug. But do you think it's something that the Tolkien might have imagined? Yeah. Well, I mean, he certainly imagines it happening afterwards. afterwards I mean, he, yeah. he 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 very definitely, you know, Gandalf in both in Appendix A, the Appendix A that that was not cut, and in the Quest of Erebor, published in Unfinished Tales, namely the the Appendix A that was cut, um, all of that um, all of that stuff is uh, is premised upon the potential and likely coordination between Sauron and Smaug. Um, and that, in particular, he imagines that Smaug is going to go and sack Rivendell. Yeah. But, or, uh, and I suppose the, the way it's, attacks are going on in the South. Right. The way it's phrased, it really leaves open the possibility. He says, you know, uh, something about Sauron using the, the dragon with great, to, you know, to great effect or something in the North. Yes. And he doesn't say... 
anything about how, um, how that arrangement would come about. He doesn't say like, you know, well, we think with, with great deal of effort or in some subtle negotiation, Sauron could get Smaug to do his bidding. So there's, there is the possibility that maybe Smaug is already under the influence of Sauron at that point, maybe even dating all the way back to his initial sack of the Lonely Mountain. Yeah, conceivably. I mean, and again, this is this is one of those things which falls into the category of something certainly not envisioned in The Hobbit when he wrote it as a freestanding story, you know, in the in the early 30s, um but is something which becomes almost inescapable when you place that story, that Hobbit story in the context of the Middle-earth story as it as it unfolded. The connections between The Hobbit and The Silmarillion, I think are fairly tentative at the beginning. There are references and stuff, I'm not denying that, but I think, and I was making this argument in my Hobbit class at Mythgard this past semester, that um, he's not really imagining the Hobbit as a chapter in the story of Middle-earth. I don't think that that is a firmly and clearly established idea yeah. in Tolkien's mind as he's drafting the Hobbit. Um, he alludes to all those things, but that's because all of those things, meaning Gondolin and Elrond, um, and all of those people who already exist in the, in the Silmarillion material, the Book of Lost Tales stuff that he's already written, and the Lay of Lathian... Um, all of those things, he's he's using that stuff as raw material. It's all unpublished, and so far as he knows, always going to be unpublished. So he's drawing on those names, he's drawing on those stories, but it is not at all obvious to me that the Hobbit story is intended by him to be really in the same world, right. to be really part of the same story. But when it becomes so, when it becomes fit, uh, fitted in not only with the stuff that comes after in the sequel and the Lord of the Rings material, but also with the stuff that came before with the Silmarillion material, um, and The Hobbit is firmly placed within that whole context, then there are certain questions which become inevitable and certain conclusions which seem, if not totally inescapable, uh, to be really, really likely. And, and one of those things clearly is the coordination of Sauron and Smaug. Smaug being one of the descendants of, of Glaurung, you know, one of the one of the descendants of the dragons that were bred by Morgoth up in the north. You know, and Sauron was the lieutenant of Morgoth. So, you know, he like basically the dragons would have been working with or under Sauron previously in the first age. Um, so that he would come, you know, if there were a really powerful dragon you know, that close to his home base. I mean, we're talking, what, 100 leagues away? You know, it's it's not all that far. Bilbo travels further than the distance between Dal Guldur and Erebor, where, where Smaug is. So he's going to have a potential ally, a potential, uh, you know, a potential servant, really powerful servant right there, and never look into it. It becomes impossible once you place it in that context. It's perfectly possible. There's no need for a connection between that necromancer dude in The Hobbit and the dragon. The, the two things are totally separate in that story. But once mm -hmm. they're both placed within that larger continuum, you know, that question becomes an inescapable question. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, I, I, I do think that, and it is clearly, that, that is clearly the framework, as I've said many times, that the films are, are, are coming from. So I do think that the films have to at least deal with that. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine that Gandalf and Galadriel and Elrond are not going to even be thinking about this, you know, that it's never going to come up. Um, you know, they, I think, are going to see. Um, I would expect, given what we saw in that preview, the one that you mentioned, um, in that trailer of Elrond's grouchiness about, you know, at, at, at the dwarves and how he thinks this is a really bad idea, what they're trying to do. 
it sounds like we may even get Gandalf talking Elrond into helping them, you know, by saying, look, you know, dude, um, you know, we've got this dragon, like we need to do something about that, you know, so let's, by all means, let us, let us, you know, um, <laughs> let right. us make common cause with these dwarves, um, and maybe they will help solve that problem while we go down and try to solve this other this problem. This actually, this, in this case, it might actually be an effective argument, you know, like, right. ah, I don't know, Gandalf, I don't know if we should really mess with the dragon. Look, dude, where, where do you think if if we if we lose this deal with the necromancer and he returns the power and the dragon's still there, where do you think he's going first? Right, exactly, exactly. He's flying right up here, my friend, to your fun little <laughs> valley. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, yep. good point. Maybe we should take care of the dragon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised to see that kind of a conversation happening at some point in the film, um, in the Rivendell sequence right. uh, between Gandalf and Elrond. I mean, who knows? Um, but, but yeah, it, it it becomes something. See, I mean, again, this is this is the thing that I think it's the kind of things that happen when you really think through the consequence of telling the story from that later point of view questions, which, you know, it's easy to say, Oh, that's not in the book. It's, you know, it's, you know, none of this stuff is in the book. No, it's not in the original book, but once you place it in the context that Tolkien placed it in, these questions become in these questions, which are not answered or addressed or any way relevant to the book, uh, to the book alone become, absolutely inevitable you have to answer them and Tolkien did you know or at least many of them he addressed not all of them he addressed clearly um, and he didn't go through them systematically because he didn't retell that whole story um, started to but mercifully stopped um, in 1960 a lot of people don't know that that he started rewriting the entire Hobbit from the uh, from in in the style of the Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. um, you know had he finished that who knows exactly where it would have gone and what he would have included but um, but uh, but anyway, yeah, I, I, that's that's it's definitely a big issue. We should probably uh, we should probably wrap up here fairly soon, though. Yes, but I have I do have one more miscellaneous okay. question that I think is, is somewhat right, related. Do you think there's a possible chance that they will not, in fact, uh, that that in this retelling of the Hobbit throughout the throughout the three films, that they will not, in fact, discover that the necromancer is Sauron? No. I can't imagine that. Okay. Because again, see, this is the thing: is that, I mean, unless, un okay, l let me give this one caveat: unless Peter Jackson really is intending a bridge film, unless he really is actively not just like hoping, but actively planning, like has has a like secret deal in place already with the studio kind of thing, like unless he is planning, making like already writing script for a bridge film between The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, I would say no. Um, because there, there are some questions that I don't, I just, I don't think he can leave. Um, this is, as films go, this film is a prequel to The Lord of the Rings. I know a lot of Tolkien fans hate The Hobbit being called a prequel, and I totally understand. No, The Hobbit was the original. It was not the prequel to The Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings was the sequel to The Hobbit. Yes, that's true. But the film is a prequel to The Lord of the Rings films. Um, so the the um, given that, given its status as a prequel, you can't. There are some questions. There are some things that you can't leave untold. You know, you can't, you can't, you can't not explain. I mean, like you can't. Um, if they want to leave the issue of Saruman's fall off the table, 
mm-hmm. could conceive of that. I'd be disappointed, but I could conceive of that at least. Um, but they have to have. I mean, I I can't imagine that these films would would even could even be really considered a success as a prequel if they don't set the stage for the for the later story. Well, what if they did Which a are the previous films? what if they did a final um a final reveal at the end of the third film so that the audience finds out that uh that he was Well, okay, what if what if what if they basically I guess what I'm really asking is um is there the possibility that the white council won't know that it's Sauron until after everything's said and done? Where you know um, maybe they'll decide this necromancer guy is a threat. We should take him out. They'll go and attack whatever battle Dol Guldor. Smog stuff happens. Then they're like, um, you know, so we were poking around. Uh, you know, somebody comes running out to Gladril and, and and Gandalf says we were poking around in there and uh, th- we found something that we think you should see. Oh crap! It was Sauron. <laughs> right, right. I don't know. I don't know what they find. You know, his uh, his journal, sensitive documents. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, his they, diary. They didn't. They didn't uh, succeed in shredding everything on their way. Out. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. 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 They still have his files. Uh, you know that that he didn't destroy all of his hard drives. Um, uh, I mean, that's possible. I mean, it, it is conceivable. I, I would be. Um, I would be really surprised. I mean, I think that the whole, you know, as you have been saying in the past, I think the whole mystery of who the necromancer really is, I think that that's too obvious and compelling a plot line mm-hmm. for them to leave out completely, especially since um, it seems to me, thinking of the plot arc of that particular part of the story, um, I would think that a far more satisfying plot arc is they discover who he really is and they go forth to battle against him and they, you know, they win a battle against him, but then afterwards have reason to believe that, you know, the battle is not over. Um, You know, they know that worse is going to be, and, you know, so they, they come with the, with the, you know, they, they end with the recognition, okay, we've, you know, we've, we've won a battle here and we may have achieved peace for several decades, but you know, the real battle still lies before us. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and then we get a shot of them like setting to work on Varadur down in Mordor or whatever. Um, uh, you know them uh, the, the the opening of the red eye of the flaming eyeball at the top of the tower for the first time or whatever. Yeah, that's what Tony Me said. Maybe the last yeah. shot will be the the eyeball catching fire. Right, exactly. Somebody, <sighs> somebody, somebody lighting up the the like, eyeball like the Olympic the torch. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I love it. I love it. We get you know orcs like uh, you know an orc running with the torch and then. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay, well, that, okay. That's, my new, that's my new favorite way to think about what, it what uh do you think they'll know it's sauron by the end of the first film maybe not because um maybe not um that might be again especially if they're gonna if they are still gonna do the tombs of the nazgul thing my understanding of what we got the reports that we heard out of CinemaCon were suggesting that it is gandalf's exploration of the tombs of the nazgul that lead him to the conclusion that the necromancer is sauron um so if that's the case then i would expect that that would happen in in film two um that film two would be 
Um, film one would be primarily focused on Bilbo and the dwarves, but we would get in the midst of it a there's this thing that we need to figure out. Okay, we can all finally agree that I should go. I Gandalf should go and investigate this. I'll go see what I can find, and I'll go talk to Radagast, who apparently is getting attacked by spiders and sending up some kind of alarm bells. Um, so I'll go find Radagast, and I'll explore this when we get to Mirkwood. Um, you know, I'll let Bilbo and the dwarves go off by themselves, mm-hmm. and I'll go do that. And then film two is going to start pretty, I mean, film two, if we're, if we're, you know, stopping with the Eagles at the end of this first film, film two, will get Bjorn at the beginning and then Gandalf taking off right after that. So the second film is positioned to start quickly with Gandalf going off on his search and then could easily then culminate in the battle of Dol Guldur. And that could still happen in the second film as we kind of suspect it will so that Gandalf can be freed up to head up to the battle of five armies in film three. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how I would expect it to go. So, so is he getting, you know, could, could we go all of film one without the reveal? Yeah, I think we could. Um, because it sounds like the majority of that real action of the, of this, of the screen time that's going to be devoted to Gandalf doing stuff in Mirkwood and finding out about Dol Guldur and going to attack him. That seems to be a film two concern. Yep. Okay. Well, so, so that's a no, I'm going with no two. That just became a conundrum question. Okay, well there we are. So, Very good. all right, oh, and, let's yeah, get on. So, the the yeah, people let's, are, so let's do the the riddle. Yeah, the people are demanding the riddle. So, okay, no, the riddle is about is about it's back to the Saruman question. So, uh, let me I don't know. let me get the wording of it. Do you have the wording of it? I do. Okay, could you read it? I don't have it in front of me. I can. Um, what evidence will we see in film one of Saruman's impending villainhood? Uh, A A is the book answer, I guess. None whatsoever. <laughs> right. Uh, right. It will be absent. That's the book. He, he won't even be in the film. <laughs> right. Okay, we know that's not right. true. Um, foreshadowing and dramatic irony, but nothing definite, and no one suspects him. So, by the way, we could, we, we, we could also call option A the Christopher Lee answer. Yeah, the Christopher Lee answer. Um, Saru, uh, B is foreshadowing and dramatic irony, but nothing definite. I, I'm going to have you explain that in a second. Okay. C yeah. is Saruman is a trusted member of the council, but some members of the council are uneasy and talk about it behind his back. And then D is the audience gets clear evidence that Saruman is evil or is becoming evil. Um, so... Uh, uh, first, first off, what is what do you mean on B? Okay, basically, my distinction between B and C is the difference that we talked about before. C is characters in the film have suspicions. B is characters in the films don't have suspicion, but the audience has some reason to suspect. You know, we are given some cues, some kind of foreshadowings, some kind of hints that maybe all is not well here, but nobody nobody inside the story really suspects. You know, maybe we get like, you know, we get a glimpse of Sauron, you know, like uh, they're having a discussion and, and we get, a, we get a, a glimpse of Sauron making a face in response to something somebody said. And Howard Shore gives us a little teaser of the Saruman theme music, you know, the Isengard uh, theme music from the Lord of the Rings. You know, I, I could see Howard Shore dropping us a little hint about, uh, you know, the evil designs in, in Saruman's mind. That would count, for instance, as B. 
you know, okay. where, where we, the audience, have some reason to suspect that Sauron is thinking crooked thoughts here, but Gandalf, Goadriel, Elrond, nobody present expresses any concern, that we don't really have much reason to think that they're and worried. There's, there's no, there's no, there's no, no evidence that anyone in the story suspects him, and there's no definite evidence that the would lead the audience to that confirms the audience's suspicions. Right, right. It's just like just just hints and foreshadowings. Nothing definite. Uh, what I mean Tony by Mead asks, deeds... okay. Tony Tony yeah. Mead asks, is Saruman if if he sort of shows disdain for Radagast uh, and Gandalf, uh, does that count as B? Well, no, because that could just be him, him being a jerk. I mean, yeah. it, it, would, it would depend on how it goes. This would have, that would have to be, I think, a judgment call uh, from our judges. Um, but it's definitely it, not D. It's definitely not D. No, D would be like we see him go back to Isengard and there are orcs there. You know, or we see him um, go back like, after the meeting in Rivendell. We get like a brief scene of of Saruman down in Isengard with the Palantir, you know, reporting back to 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 Sauron. Like that would be D, clear, like obvious evidence. Like the the audience is is left in no doubt that Saruman is already evil and is betraying them or planning to betray them. That would be D. Yeah. That could okay. still, I think, be be done in a way that conceals it from everybody else so that Gandalf and Goadriel don't suspect. But that would be D. C is, you know, that you know, again, Gandalf and Goadriel about it. Maybe sorry, Gandalf and Goadriel are doubtful. Maybe they talk about it to, with each other. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just sort of make some allusions to it. I don't know. But we have, we see reason to to believe that they are dubious about about Saruman. B again is just nobody else is dubious other than the fact that uh, we have some hints or foreshadowing to suspect. Okay. Um, and so C is, is it, it, can we order these sort of in, in monotonically and in increasing evidence that he's evil? So like A is there's no hints to us or on-screen on, on characters. B, there's foreshadowing, but no, no, con, no confirmation. D is... The audience has clear evidence, but there's no evidence that people people on screen in the story know. And then C is um, the that that we know and other characters in the story su suspect. Or is C kind of maybe the audience hasn't seen evidence, but the other characters suspect him. Yeah, because I do want to leave that open as another category, because they might not show us anything over. <coughs> Um, they might simply, I mean, the, the the only cues given to us, the audience, may well be the suspicions of Gandalf and Gondor. Okay. Oh, I see. Okay, so actually, so so these are, A through D are ordered in, in, in order of evidence for the audience. A is we get nothing. So. B is we get some, some hints. Uh, C is... That the, uh, that the that other characters clue us into the to possible right. treachery right. And, D and, is and we that see... probably also includes hints and foreshadowing too you know that yes, we get hints yes. and foreshadowing and Gandalf and Goadriel notice them also yes um, yeah. D is D is we get clear evidence even if the other characters don't notice it we know for a fact that he is already evil yeah okay yeah okay yeah cool See, Chris asks, what if Goadriel is suspicious but Gandalf is trusting? I'm going to say anybody who has suspicions counts as C. It doesn't have to be both of them. Um, yeah. if, if anybody, um, if we get any indication from a character in the film that they, that they think Saruman is, is dodgy, yep. let's see. Yes, that, that is correct. Um, 
it is uh, um, <clears throat> sorry it is correct uh, it, it it's it's purely based on the nature and strength of the evidence that we the audience possess that he is in fact evil at this point in the story right James asks does it count if the characters that know or suspect get killed Yes, that's still C. Yes. If Radagast figures it out and then Saruman offs him, I'm still kind of, well, I count that as D. I mean, if we see him off Radagast, that counts as D, right? Uh, so, 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 yeah, that definitely, be, but I mean, that's obviously not going to happen in film one. I think that's pretty clear that that's not happening ben, in film one if it happens. Ben asks a combination of B and C, but not quite D. That means C. It, it boils down to what is the right. strongest evidence that the audience has so far that um, Saruman is already evil? Yep, exactly, um, exactly. And, uh, uh, and Tony asks, uh, uh, in the answer, Tony, is yes, first film only, on-screen, theatrical release. <laughs> that's right. As always. So, yep, that's been, that, th those, have been, those have been the fundamental parameters of the game from the beginning. Yep, that's right. Um, uh, let's see. <laughs> Billy suggests option E. Saruman has Gollum-style schizophrenia. <laughs> I like it. I like I think it. it. I think it still counts as D, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, I agree. But, but you'll get a. But if that happens on screen, Billy, you get bonus point. Uh yes, <laughs> exactly. A huge bonus point. Huge bonus point. Okay. Um. Hmm. Well, okay. This is tough. I'm gonna it go is. with. I'm gonna go with. I'm gonna go with C. Interesting. I'm torn. I feel I, I I in doing this I feel this to be a risky move, but I'm gonna go with C. And the reason I'm gonna go with C, is that I believe that they're going to be doing a lot of work to build up Gandalf and Galadriel in this movie. In these movies, I should say. I think mm -hmm. that Goadriel and Gandalf's stock in particular is going to be really high in these films. Elrond's perhaps not so much, but Gandalf and Goadriel are going to be up. And therefore, I think that um, at least one of them, and maybe it'll be Goadriel, will be... Because we, the audience, know. I mean, everybody seeing these films will have seen the Lord of the Rings films and will know that Saruman is a bad guy. So it's it's going to be inescapable. I mean, if he's wicked and everybody is like, oh, everything's fine, there's no problem here, people are either going to be confused or, if, or, or tempted, perhaps, to scoff at the characters who are being duped in front of our eyes, which is, in fact, what would be happening. Um, unless they're re he's really going to try to get us to believe that this is totally pre-fall and that Saruman is still like as pure as the driven snow at this point, which I think is going to be hard for him to try to set up and convince us of. So at least to set it up convincingly. So therefore, I think that I suspect that he is going to bolster the uh, like the wisdom and sagacity of at least Galadriel in particular by having mm -hmm. her express reservations. Especially since she was like Miss Mind Reader, I perceive the intentions of people. Um, and that was something that we got in the film as well as in the book from her. Um, so it would seem to be a, a, a singular fail on her part if she were to be utterly duped by Saruman. 
so and and that seems to me to fit best with the way that they 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 seem to have depicted Galadriel in the Lord of the Rings films and the way that they seem to be positioning her. And by positioning her, by the way, I even mean that literally. Like the way mm-hmm. that she's always standing with her dress swirling around her in all of the shots that we've seen of her in the trailers. Mm-hmm. I mean, she is this like statuesque goddess-like figure. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, even the physical posturing of her and the, and, the, and the costuming that we get of her seems to have her on this pedestal um so i so that's that's my that's my rationale for c why i think we're going to get some words of caution um words of caution i i my 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 specific prediction so c is my general prediction in particular what i would expect is that we will get at least one word of word of warning from galadriel to gandalf you know that she at some point is going to be like i'd be a little careful about trusting Sauron. And yeah. Gandalf is going to have some reason that some reason to sort of resist that. That's not going to make him look like an idiot. All right, I'm convinced. I'm going with C too. <laughs> See, I shouldn't be allowed to give my whole spiel before you vote. <laughs> I would change my answer. I, I was I was leaning toward B, but I, I I think you're right. I I really do think. I think given a choice between consistency with the first with the first set of films and good storytelling, they'll, they'll, they will, they will opt for good storytelling. I think that good storytelling in this case means playing up the politics, conflict, suspicions. I think that really plays into the great storyline. Um, and I think you're right. I think it really is consistent with Galadriel's character. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, I think that, that, that some hint of, of distrust on their part seems highly likely. And, and even if this means, and I don't think this I don't think distrust on their part opens the door to um, uh, I don't think that necessarily invites inconsistency with the earlier films. There's a variety of ways they could address that one. Gladriel could be suspicious and Gandalf could not be. Maybe Gandalf will right. say, oh, you're all you're always saying that about you've never trusted him. He's fine. Um, or they could they could have Saruman pull some kind of trick at the end of the the, the trilogy, the Hobbit trilogy that that rewins everyone's trust at least for a while, mm-hmm. or at least Gandalf's, because mm-hmm. the only person who on screen demonstrates unwavering faith in Saruman is Gandalf. Uh, so right. Gandalf's the only right. person that by the end of this trilogy needs to trust Saruman again in order to be consistent. So yeah, <laughs> yep. yep, yep. So I'm going I'm going with C as well. Okay. All right. Good. What are the um, uh, What does the audience think? That's right. So we've got. I see we've got some Billy C's. C. We had some. We had some B's. I think before. James says uh, C. Okay. Yama's going with B. Yama's okay. going with Sarah's B. Sarah's going with B. Good. <coughs> right, ben C. Mostly B's and C's. We've had B's and C's all the way along. We've 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 rarely gotten anybody to hit the extremes lately. I've noticed. Yes. Yeah, I wonder if that means we're we're getting, in some sense, we're getting better and better at making predictions. We're formulating answers that seem highly likely. Yeah. And so people yeah. are biased and, I mean, into and, those. And, and admittedly, though, you know, though it's interesting <coughs> that nobody's going with what we labeled the Chris, the Christopher Lee argument. I mean, if because if Christopher <laughs> Lee, if the dude who plays Saruman is right, the answer is A. I yeah, mean, that's a if... that's a really good point. <laughs> well, I, it could technically be C. 
he yes, he could true, because he could, he as far as he knows, is playing a perfectly perfectly trustworthy wizard, and other people could be suspicious of him. Right, he doesn't realize that Galadriel and Gandalf are off talking about him behind his back. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> okay. Um, Interesting. Yep. Okay. Um, All right. Good. So um, uh, before we go, Corey, I have a link that yeah. you have to click on. Can you see things okay. in the chat room? Uh, in the chat room. Okay, I gotta go to the chat the, room. I'm not there. I mean the chat in oh, the, the chat webinar. Thing. Oh yes, which one? The glimpse of click smile? on the second. The, click on the second link that I made, and it's okay. It's, let's see. There'll be some abrupt noise. You and pay attention because you want to see the very first thing that shows up when it loads. All right, hang on. Okay, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna show my screen here. Oh yeah, please do. So that, so that people can see it. Okay. All right. Uh, hang on a second. In fact, maybe we should just watch the whole thing. It's pretty short. Yeah, yeah. I, I do that. Okay. This is this is the Hobbit TV spot nine. Okay. Uh, <coughs> okay. Showing my screen. Okay. Can you guys see this? Yep. Rewind to the beginning. Okay, I'll rewind to the beginning. But watch very carefully when it gets to around 19 to 20 seconds. Actually, watch carefully before that, too. All right, here we go. Okay. Well, actually, hang on a second. Probably sure. not going to get sound. Uh, let me... Um, Is there a way to do sound? Uh, yeah. Sorry, I didn't have my hardware set up for sound here. Um, eh, don't worry about it. I can add sound in later. Okay. Okay. It's really the Im it's really what you see that's the the uh the the, the important thing here. So that obviously was smog, which is which is exciting. You know, you saw a glimpse of smog, but that's not the exciting, exciting part. All right, it's coming up. Do you see it? All right. So did you see at twenty? Uh, what smog? No, it it uh, uh at right around twenty seconds. Um, uh, I, I don't want to spoil it for you. All right. Um, on, scroll let, forward let me, to about me, right, right there, right around 18 or 19. Hang on. I'm muting it now. All right. Okay. So we just got, we did get a glimpse of the destruction there. I haven't yep. seen this one. I haven't seen this one on TV. No, I, this one, I've heard rumors of this, but I didn't, didn't believe it until I see. All right, it's coming up. Watch very closely. It's right after, right after here. Oh, oh, no. Right there? <laughs> yes. What else oh, could you, it possibly be? You've got to be kidding me. Yeah. <laughs> That seems very likely, doesn't it? Yes. 
Oh man, yeah, I, I I missed it completely the first time. They show it for what, like half a second? Yes. Okay. Wow. <coughs> well, and, that and, made my day. Yeah, I knew um, it would. And and I do yeah. want to give credit. I want to give credit to uh, to Tony Mead. He posted about this on your on the Facebook on the Token Professor Facebook page like two or three days ago. He was like. I'm pretty sure I just watched a TV spot that showed us Smog and the Battle of Azanobazar. And I and I will readily admit, I said, I'm not going to believe it until I see it with my own eyes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I saw that post, but actually, for some reason, I didn't, I, 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 I just kind of, I must have just glanced across it quickly because I saw the references to Smog, but I didn't, uh, I didn't even notice that, uh, as an Obazar was was at issue there, but no, absolutely, um, that really that really looks because th those guys in the foreground are clearly all dwarves. I mean, you can yep. you can see that no, that's that is a that is a that is clear dwarf on orc action right there. Oh yeah, though though this is a little bit interesting. Look at the blue sword in the foreground there. Oh yeah. We seem to have a magical blue sword going on in this battle, which is interesting. Um, hmm, not sure what to make of that. But anyway, okay, boy, this I will be. I will be prepared. I'll be prepared. And you know, I, 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 I think. I hope that if I do get to see a, a, an early preview of the show, it's with a fairly small audience. Because again, like I, I mean, I'm like, it, there's no way I'm going to not whoop aloud if there is the Battle of Azanul Bazaar in the films, and uh, uh, and that like is going to be really annoying. Um, so, but yeah, Yana, exactly. That sword looks does look like a sting glow there. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, okay. I I think. Uh, that's that's well that's darn it that's really good news. <laughs> yeah, I, there's there's no way around it. <laughs> it's, I I against our worst fears they somehow fit it in. Yeah, yeah. Um wow. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. Um that's really incredible. I wonder. I mean, I how? What are they gonna see? This is gonna be. I, I'm gonna be like how the first half hour of this film pans out is gonna be. Um, I'm that gonna be really the, curious to see. Yeah, that that seems to be the probably the biggest open question about these films. Like, what is the first half hour gonna be like? Because goodness, after, I mean, after... you think of all the elements that they have. I mean, you've got. The Bilbo and Frodo frame, which we haven't even talked about for two months, but you've got the Bilbo Frodo frame, right? Which presumably mm -hmm. is still happening. We're still going to get Elijah Wood somewhere in here. Then you have flashbacks to the Battle of, of as an Ulbazar, flashbacks to the destruction of Dale, um, maybe some kind of setup or anticipation for the Necromancer plot, so that doesn't totally come out of nowhere. When are we going to get Radagast getting his house attacked by spiders? Um, because, you know, if he's going to be sending messages up to Rivendell, I guess we could just, like, just like in the Fellowship of the Ring film, uh, Gandalf crossed the distance between the Shire and uh, Gondor pretty darn quickly, so maybe we're not going to worry about that too much in the films. But anyway, I mean, there's a lot of stuff to cover. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, I guess a bunch of it could be done during the 
during the unexpected party, you know, in, in sort of flashback mode or whatever, but it's, um, there's a lot, there's a lot. Is there, um, is there a possibility that this is actually a clip from the battle five armies? Um, I, I mean, it has been, it has been their, their modus operandus not to show footage from future films at this point. Yeah. And, they have made it fairly clear in a variety of interviews that they have actually they have not filmed much at all of the uh, of the Battle of Five Armies that they still have a lot of work to do. No, I mean uh, if if not for they, the fact that we've gotten like you know the things that Richard Armitage has said about you know the things that he has dropped about you know ancient battles of the dwarves and and goblins. I mean there has been enough mounting evidence to suggest that the Battle of Azanul Bazaar in some form might appear. Um, in the in the films that I I think that we don't have to go there. I, I mean, under those circumstances, given the fact that not, I mean, forget the business that they probably haven't filmed it yet, as you say. But even if that weren't the case, um, given how careful that they are being about, I mean, it's hard for me to imagine Peter Jackson putting a even a half second glimpse of film three in a trailer for film one. Um, yeah, that that seems to me far more unlikely, even than the inclusion of the Battle of Azanul Bazaar. But man, okay. Um, it's pretty right. exciting. By Very the way, cool. there is a glimpse of Dol Golder at the end. Yep, yep, yeah, yeah. No, that I've seen a, a couple of places. Um, and even that, by the way, is interesting. I mean, the fact that we're getting glimpses of of Dol Guldur, mm -hmm. we won't, it seems, get Gandalf's approach to it. But it seems it is going to appear on screen. So either we're going to do a helicopter shot of Dol Guldur, you know, as a as a visual when they're discussing it or else we're going to actually get something, you know, we're going to actually get shots of Bolg and Azog. I don't know what getting their instructions. Anyway, we're going to see it. I don't know. Um, but it does definitely, does definitely suggest that. So, um, well, I wow, will that, be, uh, that definitely made our day. Absolutely, man. Oh yeah. That's fantastic. Um, uh, and if we get, you know, Billy, maybe we'll get the burned dwarfs. You know, maybe we will. I don't know. I'm, I'm a lot more hopeful than, than, I, that, than I was ever. Yeah, oh, man. Hope is higher than ever before. This is fantastic. Um, yeah, even the terrain suggested with the mountains in the background. Um, right, yeah, Ben was saying it's too many mountains for the, for the, for the Battle of Five Armies. I think, I think you're right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I mean, with the, with the dwarves charging uphill at the goblins who are standing in ranks, that's just what you'd expect in the Battle of Azanulbazar. Yep. Okay. Sharon, no, I am still not any more optimistic about the talking verse. I still really not. Um, but, hey, that's fine. Um, cool. Very cool. All right. Well, let's, on that highly optimistic note, we should probably end here as we're trying to set a new record. So, uh, so anyway, thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will be back uh, in two weeks for our final episode as we wrap up and review uh, the parameters of the of the voting to, for everybody to or of the uh, of the riddles for everybody to get their voting in prior to uh, the release of the film and uh, segment builds pace. Uh, so thanks for listening, everyone. Godspeed.